Hello and welcome to Horror. This is a fortnightly podcast in which myself, Lee, and Adam will be taking our friend Chris on a journey through the twisted world of horror cinema in the hopes of introducing him to some of the many delights the genre has to offer. The premise is very simple. We will sit down together and watch a film. As soon as it's finished, we will sit down and record the podcast immediately afterwards. As such, it will be very spoiler-heavy, and we do suggest you watch the film yourself before listening to the podcast, not only so we don't spoil it, but also so you know exactly what we're talking about. At the end of each discussion, we'll decide what film we'll be watching next, and we'll let you know so you have a fortnight to watch it yourselves, and then come on our journey with us again. Along the way, there will be facts, laughs, opinions, probably quite a lot of swearing. Any full frontal nudity will be completely irrelevant, as this is audio only. So, with the introduction over, it's now time for the podcast. Thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I've never been drinking and I sounded drunk. Let me try that again. I should. Should we introduce ourselves and say something like, "So I'm Lee, the host. I'm Chris." Only because one of them heard it and it stuck in my mind. I thought, "Mm, "Yeah," but I don't mind. We could, if you'd like to. No, well, so I'd have to think of something which makes it harder. So, so maybe next time. when, when you suggest it, maybe. See, see, I think you're an honest man. Yeah, and you've suggested it. Whereas other people, it's not like you know when people go, "How was your weekend?" and you know it's just because they want you to, to ask, ask them because yeah, yeah. oh, it's like yeah. I went here and I did this and it was fucking mm. great. Mm. <laughs> Whereas with you, you genuinely meant that, and then it was like, "Oh fuck!" You know, I've yeah, been, I don't know I'm what I'm <laughs> It's throw it out there. If someone says, "What well, we'll do that?" No, all right, now I've got to do some work. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I just yeah. thought it seemed good when I heard it. Yeah, no, let's go with that. But okay. it does mean we've got to think of something. Oh, and whether we say the same thing each week or whether we change it. But I think we should change it, it'll be fun. Mm. Mm. So it could relate to the film. Could do. Right, good evening ladies and gentlemen. Um, I am Lee, your Master of Ceremonies this evening. I am Adam, the town drunk who's going to wall you up. And I am Chris. The black cat stuck in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> go on Chris have a go have a yeah. think and then have a go no pressure you're going to have to do all this no I don't do funny till I'm in the right mood and I was going to say not the rapist which would make sense which <laughs> <laughs> not the rapist right yeah but but I didn't think it was going to come across the way that it was in my head <laughs> Because I need to explain. <laughs> no, it will make more sense later. I, th- I think as long as it does make sense later, because that does kind of imply that it's like someone's put a rumor out there <laughs> yeah. that there's two rapists on the podcast, and you're now saying it's not me. <laughs> well, it's, oh. it's related to the film. This is old. It's staying. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah. Okay. Do not edit me. <laughs> 
You know, it's, it's what line do we get to before Lee says, no, that's definitely not staying? There is no line. Mm. There is no, well, I don't know, we had to read it a bit deeper. Yeah. Um, uh, evening, Dean, listening. Um, yes, so this evening we have covered the fantastic American International um, Tales of Terror. Um, Chris's introduction to, uh, to AIP in general, um, the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, loose adaptations by Roger mm. Corman, um, the wonderful Vincent Price, who I'm sure we'll bore you to tears with by the time we get bored of this podcast, um, Basil Rathbone, Peter Laurie, the list goes on. Um, so that was, so we've just come out of that. Um, but before mm. we get into that. One of those must have been the drunk guy. Peter Laurie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He's got a fantastic career. Well, I'm sure that'll okay. be covered. Um, so, before we get into that, Adam, what have you been watching horror-wise since last we met? Do you know what? Absolutely sod all, I think. Apart from... Oh, no. Apart from... And it's weird because... Um, yeah, uh, I, Claire had never seen Silence of the Lambs. Okay. So I and she was like, and obviously like as as has been stated before, she's not keen on horror. But as I pointed out, there's no supernatural element to it or anything that would disturb her. Hmm. I mean, it's a tense film, but you know, it's humans being horrible to each other, which she's perfectly fine with. <laughs> you know, that's which is it, which is insane. It's like so. What you're saying is we can watch things that could really happen. Yeah. But, but shit that can't, can't happen will worry you. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, so we watched Science of the Lands, which she really liked. Um, but then the weirdest thing was is that sort of that... I think we watched it on the Sunday, and then Monday it was all people... It, it's it's been re-released at the cinema because it's 25 years. Mm. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's been 25 years? 92. Mm. Well, we, we should probably watch that then. It's, a... It is... A, I mean, it's still a... It's still... I mean, the only thing I find with it now is... I mean, that was the thing she said, is that it's um, she now has a thousand and one pop culture references yeah. finally yeah. explained yeah. by watching yes. it. And I think to the point where it's been done so often that it can't, it can't work the way it would have done going into it cold. Yeah. But then the good thing is because she didn't know where it was going or anything else like that. So that was... That was quite, good. you know, that was good, and she, like I say, she really enjoyed it because we've been watching that Mind Hunter. Yeah, and it was kind, and it was kind of like, right, this is what got the ball rolling with everyone being yeah. obsessed with serial killers and the FBI profiling. Yeah. Now we've just watched a drama based on the actual genuine unit. Yeah, that's good. It's kind of great to watch, go back twenty five years and watch the fictional thing that kicked off people being interested. Yeah. That's ended up with. Us watching this, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still, uh, it is still a good film, and I defend Anthony Hopkins' performance in Silence of the Lambs. It yes. got fucking ludicrous afterwards, but in Silence of the Lambs, he's still good. He's no Brian Cox, and he ain't no Mads Mikkelsen. But oh, yeah. Mads Mikkelsen is such a fantastic yeah. Hannibal. See, this is what I'm thinking is because she liked it. It's like, well, should we watch Hannibal? Because I will happily rewatch Hannibal till my brain implodes. Yeah, I will as well. <laughs> so you know, and and it's also, but I mean, it's quite, and actually, it does link to today because Roger Corman does have a cameo in it. I haven't actually seen Hannibal. Have you? What the series? Any? Hannibal oh right. Oh, anything. 
Oh, right, okay. I mean, I thought there was only a film. Yeah, no, there's, uh, yeah, because there's, it was based on a, there was two books, um, Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs, which was the sequel to it. Then Red Dragon got made into a film by, um, oh, I can't think of his sodding name, Michael Mann, the guy who did Miami Vice and Heat and okay. stuff like that. Um, yeah, they, um, they did an adaption of it called Manhunter, which is basically... Um, like a police procedural, but it does have Hannibal Lecter in it in his cell advising on the case. Mm. And it's actually... That kind of is where all the CSI stuff came from because even the main guy in Manhunter is was like the first head of CSI on the various TV series. He was like the, the first one that came out. William Peterson was playing the head of the unit and it was definitely because of Manhunter. But I mean, it was it didn't do didn't do badly, didn't do great. Um, and Brian Cox plays uh, Lecter in that one. Then Silence of the Lambs came out with like Jonathan Demi, who is one of the Roger Corman alumnus. He worked for Roger Corman, so that oh, he got him. You know how many people he's. We'll get we'll get to that in a bit. <laughs> but um, but yeah. So and that then like just really took off. And also it was weirdly because I think also because Manhunter is a police procedural, Silence of the Lambs is a police procedural, but it's shot like a horror film. Yeah, everything about it has that aesthetic, um, which is half to its detriment, half to its. Mm. Now it sort of feels overblown a bit mm. because of the more restrained versions that you see. Um, but then after that what happened was is so that was a massive success so they spoke to the author and said oh can you write us a third Hannibal Lecter book because we'll immediately sell the film rights it will do really well so he wrote a book called Hannibal um, and then they went to adapt it into a movie uh, I don't want to spoil it for people if they were you know if they're reading the books or anything like that but um, but basically Jodie Foster, who played Clarice Starling in Silence of the Lambs, who's the main protagonist of that one, didn't like the plot of Hannibal, or more to the point where Clarice ended up in in the book, like the sort of ending. So they rewrote the ending for the film, but then Jodie Foster didn't bother doing it after all anyway. <coughs> so we got someone else in, and it, but it still doesn't follow the film, uh, follow the book rather. And but yeah, I think by then they've just so gone bit, bit of a mess. Yeah, and like and then they even because of the success of that, they even remade Manhunter as Red Dragon just because it was like oh, so we've got the other film with Hannibal Lecter in it. Uh, they also did a, a f I don't know if it's based on a book, but they also did a film called Hannibal Rising, which is. Uh, which I have not seen. I kind of want to out of curiosity, but I do not want to spend money. <laughs> and, you know, I'm halfway through my life. I'm sort of counting the minutes. So, you know, I've, I'm very aware that not many people like it. But that's okay. kind of like the Hannibal Lecter origin story. But apparent, But from what I gather, it's that usual thing where, oh, you've just divorced this all of like all the power out of this. Mm. And I think also that was the trouble is because Silence of the Lambs, the whole big thing was, oh, look, it's this relationship between this yeah. agent and this killer, but it's almost like a romance and everything else like that. Yeah. So they have to, as they progressed, they made Hannibal Lecter 
it all, I mean, it never got nice, you know, it was never pleasant, but they sort of changed it up a bit that he wasn't, it was like, oh, he killed people who were worse than him and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Which I think Hannibal, like the TV series, really readdressed. Mm. Because, okay, yes, he did eat people mostly because they were rude, but this was, <laughs> but it was, it was a case of escalation because it was like someone bumped your trolley at mm. uh, Tesco's. Yeah, I want to kill and eat them, yeah. but maybe you know, in a court of law, it's going to look quite extreme as a reaction. <laughs> you know, they'd give you six months for punching them. So you know, um, but yeah. So I mean, if you if you if you're up for it, I mean, I think you know it's. It's certainly one to cover, and I think it's also unusual. It's unusual because, I mean, as a horror movie, it won loads of Oscars. Yeah. Best director, best picture, best actor, best actress. Like nine, I think it was like the 93 Oscars it would have been, or 92 Oscars, and it just basically took everything. Mm. And then after that, there was so much money involved with it that they end up doing the more books. But, but basically, yeah, muddying the waters. But the guy who's done the TV series, a guy called Brian Fuller, um, really has put his own stamp on the on the mythology, but it's if you're a Hannibal fan, like because I've read, I've read, I read all the books and sort of so on and so forth, and everything that's in the books that's any good is in the series, but it's not necessarily exactly the same. A bit like when, um, like the BBC, like Sherlock, the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock, yeah, yeah. where if you know. The stories you can re- relate them. You can relate to them, but they they do, you know they do switch it around so you're not sitting there going, well that's, that's the murder, yeah. that's that, and that. Yeah. You know they're not strict adaptions of the case, and mm-hmm. it's a, yeah from that point of view it works yeah, really well. Good. Mm. Yeah, yeah, allows you to because that's what I liked particularly about the Sherlock, the Benedict Cumberbatch mm. was the elements that you recognised and how you'd be halfway through a story and then you suddenly go, oh shit, this is. That one, yeah. That's, yeah, but it's so different yeah. that you don't. But well, it still captures the yeah. original essence. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, I, the the thing that really made me fall in love with it is in the first episode. Um, there's a bit where someone has scratched R A C H E onto something, and in the original story, a study in Scarlet, someone says, "Oh, the the killer was obviously writing Rachel on the wall, and got disturbed." And then Holmes points out that it's actually Rache, which is revenge in mm. German. Mm. And then in Sherlock, the pathologist said, oh, well, that's German for revenge, so that's what that is. And Holmes is like, well, it's more likely to be Rachel, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, just those little switches <laughs> and things like that were nice. So you weren't just... Yeah, it wasn't it's just sort of like, oh, thing exactly, yeah. yeah, it's the same thing exactly, only they've got mobiles. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, no, they did really... Mm. They did a fantastic job of that. As I say, I didn't watch it for ages because... Worried. Well, it was. Or... It was just, you know what? I love the Jeremy Brett ones mm. and um, a couple of the Basil Rathbone ones, but to tie back into the CD. Um, yeah, we're doing quite well. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the idea of doing a modern retelling of it, I was like, no, it's going to be dreadful. Mm. I've got no interest. I don't, even though Mark Gatiss is involved, I still mm. didn't see how it was going to work. Yeah, and no. then... I think Dean was house sitting. I'd gone on holiday. Dean house sat, and I came back, and it's ten o'clock at night by the time we got back or something, and it was on that night, and he specifically wanted to see it. So mm. I was like, 
right, fine, if you want to watch it, we'll, we'll watch it, because it was too late for him to go home. So he stayed for the night, so he sat and watched it, and I saw that, yeah, and then the next day I was like, yeah, I You're need to get on it. the iPlayer, get them all, get them all watched. Yeah, amazing show. Mm. Chris, what have you been watching that's... Um, well, I don't know how much we can say, but um, yeah, I watched the Stranger Things two, all of the episodes. Excellent. So you've seen all two series. Yeah, there. I do think when I'd, after I'd watched about three from the second series, I thought oh, I should have watched the first one again because it's like oh, there's a few. Oh, bits. I did exactly the same. I was like, how did that character? Yeah. I thought I knew it all pretty well. It seemed like it wasn't that long ago, but yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, I think it didn't matter, but. I sort of felt like it would have been nice to have done. Um, but, but yeah, so you watched them all. Yes. Um, I loved it, again, mm. the same as I did with the first season. Um, I think it... Although the story was very similar to the first season, I was hoping it'd be... Sl- uh, they did add the new elements of, obviously, Elle going yeah. off and... Yeah, so, so at, at first I wasn't quite sure what I thought about that but in the end I thought I, I did really like the way she kept looking for a way to kind of progress her life mm. and she couldn't figure out where she fitted in yeah exactly and so I, I thought that made sense she was just looking for any hook and trying different things and eventually realized that she wanted to come back and help yeah and you know and I guess you could sort of see it coming but I don't think that was nice again I suppose it's like growing up movie really yeah. isn't it everyone figuring out what their position is um, well that's a very 80s thing as well isn't yeah, it? Well, that, yeah there's a lot of coming of age it stuff it reminded me of Goonies a bit and you mm. know those it sort of it is a lot like yeah. the kids in it though are yeah, so like, yeah great and the mm. kid who plays Dustin is yeah. just he's yeah. so good so good yeah getting a little monster for a pet yeah, yeah. as you do yeah oh isn't um, I did see isn't Burke from Aliens in it now Burke from Aliens. The corporation guy, from the Wayland Utani guy. Yes, bad yeah, that's who he is. Really yes, he's the bad one in oh, Aliens. Right. Yeah, yeah, but, he's the, okay. like, the bloke who works for Wayland Utani. That's why I didn't like him. him for, I was like, oh, something about you I don't like, and I yeah. don't know why. Do I trust you? I don't know. There's something a bit tricky about you, and it must have been that. Yeah. But it makes sense, okay. Yeah, well, I thought he was good in it, really. Do, do you know? I don't know. I've the, not seen Aliens. It's the psychologist's uh, doctor. I don't know if he was actually a psychologist, but he was trying to help. Yes. Um, Mike, is it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, oh, no, Mike. Uh, no, Will. Will, that's yeah. it, yeah. Um, yeah. So so it's him. Yeah, no, totally. That is funny, yeah. really. That's Yeah, where he's got a bit older. That makes sense, as we all have. <laughs> but yeah. Um, um, I really like the Bob character as well. Yeah, so uh, oh, so I was trying to work out who he was, and I was like, oh, I recognise you, I recognise you, definitely. He's from Goonies. <laughs> oh, is he? Yeah, he's the main kid in Goonies. Okay, totally so, didn't realise so that. So that's back why it's Goonies. Ah. I'd, so I realised he was Sam Gamgee from Lord of the Rings. He is. And he seemed, again, a lot younger in that, but then I guess they made him seem more like a child yeah. in Lord of the Rings, because I think they sort of scaled him down or something yeah. at points. But yeah, so, okay. Yeah, he's also the main kid from Goonies. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, it was a bit sad, really, that he, yeah. that, you know, he ended up a hero. That's good. That's what he wanted. Yeah, we kind of knew. Mm, yeah, yeah. As soon as they said, someone needs to go to the basement, yeah. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, bye. No, I like you, Bob. Yeah. Don't go to the basement, Bob. But, yeah, it was, um, mm. yeah, it's great. Adam, you need to, 
it's it's ten hours per season, so you mm. could smash through it in yeah. like a week, couple of episodes a night, and and a Saturday. It's well worth it. I watched season. So when I first did it, I did all of season one, bar the last episode in one day, and did the last mm. one on the Sunday, I think. Um, yeah, and this time I did three episodes a day. And <laughs> it was done. Um, what I really liked about the first season was the mystery element. Mm. I mean, there was that was in the second one, but I just thought they did that so well in the first one. Cause, that's you know, why I'm learning about all of it. That's why I didn't know how the second season was yeah. going to work because you. Well, that was the thing. I come in, I was like, well, you know what it is now. And then I thought about it, mm. and I thought, no, you don't. Not, you don't know yeah, not, how the kids relate yeah. to it. You don't know, and you still don't know how the kids relate to yeah. it now, which would allow for for more storylines further down. But I thought they did a really good job of showing that, creating that impending doom yeah. feeling mm. of, you know, we've got this dimensional rift. It's a little bit mental, but it's all right. Yeah. We've got it contained in a room. And then all of a sudden they go, Oh no, we haven't. It's fuck. It's gone. It's we don't know. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, you do get that feeling, especially with the when you get wheels flashes mm, and yeah. you see the upside down. The upside, yeah, that that really was a an apocalyptic mm-hmm. See, it's a, it's a lovely thing in the sort of crossover of science fiction and horror when scientists have something under control. Yeah, you know that's going bad. Yeah. yeah. You know. <laughs> Frankenstein yeah. onwards, you know, yeah. it's like, nah, you ain't, have you? <laughs> um, so I watched a very interesting movie last weekend. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Adam. Have you ever seen Funny Man? The one with the, the British one with the clown yes. and um, Rona Cameron turns up as Velma... Yeah, um, Christopher no Lee's in it for about two seconds, and the yeah. funny man talks like that. Doesn't yeah, he? he's like sort of northern jester figure who just does a lot of wisecracks to camera and kills people. Yeah, yeah, it's the weirdest it's thing funny. I've I ever watched. That, like most northerners, yeah. yeah. cut, cut that bit. It's <laughs> <laughs> right, we're not touring up north yet. So. <laughs> They'd forgotten by the time. But they, but when they go out there, it'll be like that, that's him. That's, <laughs> that'll be the that'll be the next intro. It'll be I'm Adam, and I didn't say anything about me. <laughs> You'll have to answer to the king in the north. I've, I've got at least one northern friend. That, that Some of my best me. friends are northern. <laughs> um, I, I think I saw it. Literally, I saw it on rented it from Blockbuster oh, on video when it came out so I barely remember it but I do remember it being I like just s- sort of just, see it's yeah. one of those I remember the iconic image of that jester figure mm. and then on Instagram last week somebody had put up like a montage of clips like mm. short so it was just clips and I, so, and I thought oh it's an 80s American slasher demon yeah. thing you know full moon type yeah so I thought oh, I need to go and get that so I managed to track a copy down I didn't read anything up didn't watch the trailer mm. put it on didn't realise it was English didn't realise it was going to feel like made for TV yeah and as you say when he opens his mouth and he's got that proper Yorkshire accent from this 
the horrible little jester demon. I was like, mm. this is... And I spent the whole... I spent the whole time trying to work out if I was enjoying it or not. Mm. And, and the very next night, I remember thinking, could watch that again. <laughs> so I must have liked we, we it. Need, we, can we do it? For like, We'll have to do it one week because yes. I haven't... Like I say, I saw that when it came out, which must have been about 93, 94 or something like that. It's terrible. Actually, no, probably, a surreal. Bit, probably a bit later than that. But I remember... Because it's like, isn't it a record producer... Christopher Lee, he beats him in uh, Game of the, Cards, isn't he? Yes, and he puts the house up, so he wins the house. So he goes there with his family, um, yeah, and this jester thing, yeah, turns up and just kills everyone, and then a random van full of people who are supposed to be dropping all the stuff from the house turn up, and mm. he kills all of them as well, but. Yeah, in really strange Nightmare on Elm Street style. Yeah, that's what it. That's what that's what it felt like. It was like someone had said, "Let's make a British Freddy Krueger," because mm. it's that same sort of thing. It's like the wise cracks and the and the surreal deaths. Yeah, I remember something about someone in a shopping trolley. And also, doesn't he piss up the van at some point? Yeah, for no apparent reason. Yeah, he's just like, all inside like proper... trying to hide from him, and he's outside just because he's got a big jester's cod piece. Yeah. Yeah, and he's just pissing all over their van. Like and a then proper just... mighty boosh. Yeah. Like, sort of, I'm going to piss like a powerful horse. <laughs> and then just opens the door and pisses all inside the van as well. Yeah. It's just it's just nuts. It's like, weird the I shit didn't that realise comes back to you, isn't it? that jesters had cod pieces. Well, this one does. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> who, who normally has cod pieces? Uh, knights knights okay. and medieval people. Okay. Um, I think that's what it is, because jesters are medieval sort okay. of thing, so I suppose it's like... It's it just seems a bit of an odd thing. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know. I think that we might have actually been told, you know, I think as children, jesters might have been calmed down. But yeah. I imagine things were a bit baldier. <laughs> Yeah, in, in, in like the sort of Middle Ages. Possibly. So you can imagine that there's probably, you know, jesters were sort of like, you know, bit, there was probably a lot, a lot of cock jokes and like sort of, you know, sticking things up their bums and um, <laughs> not just juggling. Yeah, them. just just sort of yeah, just rude shit and sort of like you know, pinching mm. the maid's bum and just yeah, general sex pestering. But yeah, um, oh, and I watched Die Zombie Bastards again as well, <laughs> which we keep mentioning. Yeah. I'd forgotten, I didn't realise again how much of that film I'd actually forgotten. Mm. I thought I remembered it quite well, but um, I didn't at all. I'd forgotten <coughs> about the, um, I'd forgotten about the end when they release all of his other creations. So the Mosquito Men come out. And then the ninja samurai come I'd, out. I'd obviously forgotten that as well. And then he goes, at least the disobedient dogmen haven't come out. Oh no, it's the fucking disobedient dogmen. And they're just like wolfmen who just run round and knock shit over. <laughs> <laughs> and when he tells them to stop, they just ignore it. <laughs> oh, that's fucking brilliant. Oh, it's, oh yeah. It's, um, yeah, it was really enjoyable. But the problem is, I watched it in bed. I was like, I'll just stick it on for 20 minutes before I go to sleep. And it's so manic, mm. yeah, that it just totally woke me up and I couldn't sleep for about Yeah, no, that's, it's quite sort of, <laughs> yeah. 
engaging in that sense. It will sort of keep you a bit lively. Um, right. Speaking of things that I've forgotten, I didn't realise how long it is since I last saw this because I was like, I think it must have been mid nineties. Oh, really? Was the last time I saw Tales of Terror, yeah. I've seen it a couple of times, but yeah, not for a few years now. Mm. Um, again, it's it's. I keep saying again. I need to speak. Cop stops that now. Um, I I didn't remember. Or turn it into a drinking game. Yeah, every time I say again, you have to drink. You will be nutted. <laughs> um, yeah, they, I don't know if they shot them side by side, mm. but the sets as well as all of the people in it, are exactly the same as Comedy of Terrors. Yes, yeah. Um, With the exception of uh, the only one missing Karloff. Yeah. Actually, is Jack Nicholson in Comedy of Terrors, or is that... No. No, he's in the no. Raven. He's in, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm thinking of, yeah. Sorry, anyway. Yeah, we digress. But Comedy of Terrors is my favourite, and I did once do a drinking game with Dr. Dean. Oh, who's yeah. Who's been on the show. Um, so... So this film, not to get off topic before we've even got on topic, mm. there's a film called Comedy of Terrors um, in which Vincent Price plays a um, he's, um, a funeral director and Peter Laurie plays his, his assistant and the wife who they both fight over in the case of a Montelado story is the wife in that. Okay. Um, and basically, he works out that people aren't dying enough, so he has to start going out and murdering them, and then turning up very quickly on the scene to offer his assistance. <laughs> okay. Um, but Vincent Price is a drunkard in it, and he's continuously drinking. So me and my brother and Adam said, "Oh, let's have a drinking game, and we'll every time, every time he, he drinks, drinks, we'll match it." Mm. About fifteen minutes in, yeah. In, bailed out and we had to yeah and I don't think I don't think you went much further than that no. because, it, because it was literally every, every fucking scene. line yeah. Yeah. No, not even right. every scene literally he's just sitting there knocking them back <laughs> all the way through. like the opening fucking sequence or like sort of opening bit where it was the, like the setup with them just sitting there he is just slamming them back all the way through and it was like because you had because you had that big tray because didn't you put so we started off with with vodka, and then we got about eight shots in in the first five minutes and decided this is going to go wrong. So I went to the shop and bought some Smirnoff ice, because that's only about 5%. And then what we started doing was half of them were vodka. Mm. No, two-thirds of them were Smirnoff ice and the rest were vodka, and we mixed them all up so we didn't know what was what. Okay, yeah. And we were just taking random shots to try and slow it down. Mm. But yeah, still two thirds of the way in, we both started slowing down a bit because yeah. it just yeah, well, it was the same with this. You know, when you first see Vincent Price in this, yeah, and his daughter yeah. comes in, yeah. literally slams He's, one, mm. delivers a line, slams yeah. another one, delivers a line, slams another one. Uh, so, so yeah, so just to go back because I've digressed. Um, so for those of you who haven't seen it, go and watch it. But if you're not going to go and watch it, um, it's three stories. Uh, it's directed by Roger Corman and written by Roger Corman. This, they are based extremely what the, loosely. What ones are we, are we talking about? Tales of Terror. Yes. No, it's Richard Matheson. Oh, was it Richard Matheson did the screenplay? Sorry. Yeah. Oh, well, it's Roger Corman directed. Yeah. yeah. Roger Corman directed Richard Matheson, who we covered in uh, I think it's episode. Yeah, 
Episode 5, Legend of Hell House, for yes. more on Richard Matheson. <laughs> uh, there we go. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, yeah, all of the stories starred uh, Vincent Price. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, they're three very loose Edgar Allan Poe adaptations. Um, I, I remembered them being closer to the originals, but watching it again today, they they not at all. Um, but they're still closer than any of the other. Oh yeah, I think I think I think it bears I think it bears more of the intent mm. of Poe because I mean basically like the it's the three segments as they're described in this are Morella, uh, the Black Cat, which is basically the Black Cat plus another story, the Cask of Amontillado. Yeah, which is one um, of my favourite. Which is a great, which is a great story, and really it's more that than it is the Black Cat. Yeah. Um, and then the uh, facts in the case of Mr. Valdemar, yeah. or M. Valdemar, as it's described, and yeah, they're all. I mean, that sort of they're all. Um, so that's like the four Poe stories that they're based on. Morella is, and, and this is the thing: like Edgar Allan Poe stuff tends to be. He wrote some longer fiction, uh, mostly his detective stuff with Dupin um, or Dubois-Son. Um, um, yeah he um, like they're sort of slightly longer but most of his stuff is maybe sort of you know five or six pages and a lot of it is it's almost like sort of scenes or moods and things like that Uh, for example one of the other films in this series is The Pit and the Pendulum the actual story of The Pit and the Pendulum is literally someone describing being under the swinging blade that mm. is the that is the the torture method or the execution method of the title. Yeah, okay. and that is literally it. It's like two or three pages of just someone describing the blade coming closer and closer and closer and closer to them, and then the film, the pit, the pendulum goes into the Spanish Inquisition. It's got a plot, yeah. you know, it's got right. characters, it's okay. got a plot. It, but it goes back to that sequence, but. They build a whole narrative out of it, yeah. which it doesn't have. Whereas he's he's trying to explore then, like you said, feelings and kind of experiences. Yeah. And like when I first the very first bit talking about death and the heart beating, it seemed sort of quite philosophical. Mm. So that seemed to be yeah his Opposed obsession work is to it. Generally, I mean, okay. he was he was one of the, he was the first he's credited as the first horror writer, isn't he? So there, there's there's earlier ones. He's the uh, I think he's acknowledged mainly as like the first American uh, horror writer, and also he was exclusively working within that genre. Hmm. And, and 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 I think also and at the time a lot of people found it sort of uh, a lot of people found it quite shocking, also yeah. because it's it's so extreme. Yeah. Mm. Um, also, I mean, and this is something like you know we were saying with like the comedy of terrors, and in this you've got, I mean, Vincent Price is slinging them back at the start of the first sequence, Morella, mm. and then obviously the whole uh, like the the whole uh, of the, the, cast the, the black cat yeah. is yeah. just it, it, and the cast of Montalado is just Peter Laurie is a piss artist, mm. and it's yeah. all based around alcohol. And this is the thing is that um, Edgar Allan Poe was alcoholic, like degenerately alcoholic. And a lot of his, when you sort of read about his his life and stuff like that, a lot of it feeds back 
into the fiction you can see where the fixations come from and things like that but I think that Roger Corman and certainly like, like Richard Matheson and Roger Corman I think they were very aware of Poe and probably highlighted that certainly in this film hmm. and like I said Comedy of Terrors is everyone's blotto you know and I think it's yeah, I think that sort of feeds back into it. And, and uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe has a lot of... Um, he has an obsession with being buried alive. Hmm. He also has an obsession with consumptive younger women. Like sort of women dying hmm. young and being... And leaving a grieving... A, a, a grieving, husband obsessed behind. husband, yeah. Because yeah. Morella, in the actual, the actual fictional... Uh, the, the actual story... Is kind again. It's almost like a impressionistic piece about someone. You know, it's someone loses their wife. Um, well, someone's uh, wife dies in childbirth, and he becomes more and more sort of angry and horrified with the child as she grows up because she begins to resemble her mother. Mm. And it's sort of, yeah. But also in that story, there's the, which sort of, it's more explicitly explored in the film. But in that story, um, they've done, oh, what's it called? They sort of read lots of philosophy about life after death and resurrection and coming back from the, and it's, he basically goes to have the child baptised and can't help but say Morella, which is his dead wife's name, mm. and call her that, and then it sort of, and it just sort of feeds all sort of back in itself. But they obviously sort of adapted that into something a bit more linear, mm. sort of ghost story kind of thing. So yeah. But what what are your thoughts? On, on well, yeah, you've explained a little bit, um, but yeah, let me start. <clears throat> what so, do you think of Vincent Price out of interest? Oh yeah, well, he's great. Because you, you said know, halfway you through, you said yeah, this is the voice. I, that's the voice from so I hadn't. Yeah. I'd, like, I mean, I've heard the name. I mm. totally forgot that that was the name in Thriller, but um, and I didn't realise it until he was doing a voiceover on, on I think the second. Yeah, it was the black. Yeah, the intro to the black cat. Yeah, was, okay. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it was like, hold on, that sounds like Thriller. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so I didn't realise it watching him in the first um, mm. story. But um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it, he's great, really. You know. Yeah, he is. Oh. He's, he's always he always gives a hundred and ten percent. It doesn't. Mm. Again, it's like we were saying with Christopher Lee. It doesn't. Yeah. Uh, uh, Christopher uh, with Peter Cushing. I, I think mm. it's. It doesn't matter what he's in. It doesn't matter whether it's a daft little two minute thing in somebody else's movie or he is the star of the film. He always comes at it with everything he's got and okay. totally crushes it always. Mm. And that's what I love about Vincent Price and he's uh, the, the fact he's got such a massive back catalogue I own probably 25 of his films and I don't own anywhere near mm. yeah. the collection because I think I think also the thing is is that he's um, like a lot of like a lot of sort of horror actors and stuff he is very good you know he's a good comic actor yeah. as much yeah. as a serious actor he, do, he can do melodrama because I think that's the thing is that especially this sort of era of horror filmmaking mm. 
you know, you tend to have larger sort of more theatrical performances and things like that. But he can do, you know, he can do arch very well, but mm. he can do sort of like fairly natural. And also just, yeah, just his comic timing. I mean, certainly in Comedy of Terrors, but even in this with... I was going to say, that middle story, the yeah, Black with Cat him story... Yeah, Laurie is just, yeah. yeah. It's, pu- it's a pure mm. comedy story, yeah. bookended by two yeah. really creepy ghost stories. But I think, and I think that's that's a, it's a testament to him. I mean, it's I mean, I was I mean, it was weird that I was struck by the fact that he is Sons Tash, yeah, in the first story. I forgot that, um, but yeah, I mean, and just in general, I mean, that's why he's on Thriller is because it's, is it is it too much to say? I think in terms of like. I think in terms of American actors, like, or sort of that sort of era, he's probably America's equivalent of Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee. Yeah. Oh, in yeah, that he is utterly, in, although he's done sort of other things, you know, he hasn't done strictly, he, he's not always he done... Symbolizes yeah, he symbolises Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He did, and, because he did a lot of merchandising. He used mm. to do adverts and board games and all kinds of stuff he used because to. it was the it was the creepy voice that everyone yeah. wanted to use because I'm, I'm it's sure distinctive I... and that's why he's on thriller because thriller's meant to be a song about horror yeah you know or that that aesthetic so yeah yeah i'm sure i heard a, a, an interview once with his daughter um and she was uh, saying how amazing he he was mm. as, a, as a guy um, but she was saying he had a very, he was very driven by the fear of not being able to support his family. Mm. So despite the fact that was never going to happen because he was inundated with work, he would never turn anything down. So that she said he was working mm. all day, every day. He'd come back from a shoot, he'd be home for a few hours, and then he'd be off to do a commercial, and then he'd be off to do a voiceover. Because he was, he, any work that came along, he was like, well, I've got to take it now because in another year's time, him. this white yeah. work might not be here. Yeah. I think, I think, I mean, especially especially back then, I think that is an actor's mentality, though. Well, yeah, because you, it, you genuinely true. don't, you don't know. know. Yeah. yeah, and also there's no there's no pension scheme with it. Mm. You know, if you if you end up in a position where you can't perform <laughs> anymore. That is that's literally you fucked because you have no you have means. Nothing of, else of yeah, you don't have like sick pay or. Which you, is why I'm so pleased that he worked right up until the end of his life. His ne- his popularity never waned. I know with a lot of people they go through dead patches and things. Mm. He was constant right through from from when he started right through to the to the end of his life. You know, I don't I, think he ever took any big breaks or. No, and I think I think also there's there's a weird thing of there's there's certain people whose voices are just horror. Hmm. You've got uh, and and particularly like in terms of like cartoons and things like that. Hmm. You know that if you, you get if it's shorthand, you give someone Vincent Price's voice, you give someone Peter Laurie's voice, give someone Boris Karloff's voice, they're already you know, in the ballpark of, right, that's what a scary person sounds yeah. like. And the other one would be Bella Lugosi with his influence on the fact that vampires, you know, kids doing vampires now still do the Bella Lugosi voice. Yeah. Even though, you know, it's 
somehow that's still ingrained in there. Yeah, hundred years the, later, it's still the and same. it's still and it's the same. I thought you were going to give us one. <laughs> if you want later on, maybe. <laughs> but you've got Vincent Price, which is the much more unusual voice, um, and quite refined. And then you've got Karloff, which is a lot more sort of soft and creeping. <laughs> but I can't understand why people find me so scary. So I'm quite a gentleman. <laughs> and then Peter Lowry's just like that. And it's the mania and the buggly eyes <laughs> and everything coming back to me. It's funny, but, uh, Peter Laurie, I remember, I don't know if it was him or someone doing a Peter Laurie voice, but I remember from being a very small child, um, like the black and white Looney Tunes cartoons. Yeah. He fights takes, Bugs Bunny on a number of occasions and it's definitely... That's what it, it is. It is an impression of... It's someone... It's Mel Blanc doing, doing a Peter Laurie impression. Of, but again, that was that thing where, like, where they were taking from sort of... 40s films like film noir and horror stuff mm. and things like that. So Peter Laurie and it is a and it is a guy like the character or looks the, looks like Peter yeah. Laurie. It's like the sort of big head and the the sort of baby face. Yeah. Sort of look, but with the voice, <laughs> this this sort of insidious voice like that. Mm. And usually it's like scientists and stuff like yeah. that in Bugs Bunny stuff. Yeah. And it's def- I mean, this is the thing. I think that they are. It's just as a voice is so influential and they all did sort of they all did radio work and stuff like that and mm. I mean but uh I mean I can give you I can give you some some lowdown on Mr on Mr Price uh now born Vincent Leonard Price Jr Ooh. in Missouri uh 1911 uh died in 1993 at the age of 82 uh, with uh, he was uh, he actually died of lung cancer, uh, but that was because he was always on the fags. Yes. So you know it's uh, less than their kids, uh, but in later life he had emphysema and Parkinson's, which is why he so he had to cl- quiet it down. Even though he's in like Edward Scissorhands, hmm. he's not apparently the character was meant to have a greater role in it. Hmm. But they sort of basically realised that he wasn't necessarily going to be able to perform as and, much. As much, and not only that, but also it's like when you've got someone like Vincent Price, it's like it's a bit fucking awkward to try and find someone who can do that. Yeah. Although you can get people to do impressions of him morning, noon, mm. and night, but he he himself as an actor, mm. you couldn't just put in a body double and keep doing close-ups or something no, like that. No. You know, it's just it just doesn't work. Um, he, as well as an actor, he was a noted art collector, consultant and historian, uh, and he lectured and wrote books on that subject. Also, he was a gourmet chef. I believe you've got one of his books. I you? do. Cooking Price-wise. Cooking Price-wise. Which, which it, price. Yeah. And it was based on, uh, it was which also accompanied a Thames television <laughs> series uh, broadcast in 1971 in the UK. Yes. Uh, I have, I've not tracked any of it down. His other cookbook... Um, is still in one of the top ten best-selling cookbooks of all time. Him really? and his wife made this yeah. massive cookbook. Um, I've tried to buy it because it's still in print, mm. but you can only buy it from the states, and it's about fifty quid after Ooh, shipping. Christ, yeah. Um, and but it looks amazing. It's all pink and gold and embossed, and it looks <laughs> it, it looks like a Vincent Price cookbook. It's fucking amazing. That's, I mean, that's great. It's got Christmas present written all over it for Lady Jennifer one year. 
Because I think, uh, again, I think that's also, that's one of those lovely things where you've got someone who, you know, although he was, you know, acting was his job and he loved, he loved doing it and, you know, he was very good at it and everything, but it just was a means for him to be like, well, actually, I'm really interested in art. What, a lot of other things. Yeah, you know, and it's like someone to have, because I think that's like, you get sort of, you do get actors where it's like, yeah, they're a very good actor, but apparently, if you actually meet them, there's not a lot. They're, of yeah, yeah, they're there's they're like a soulless shell. But that almost fits with what you're saying, really, because it if he's worried flesh. about acting, mm. you know, not always being there, clearly he had a few other bows too. But yeah. he was, they were saying so with the the artwork, um, unless I've got this wrong, but I'm pretty sure uh, there was a chain. It was like Macy's or somewhere. And he went and purchased the rights to a load of famous artworks so that he could have them reprinted and sold in Macy's so that normal people in their household could have a reproduction of a beautiful masterpiece. Um, so you didn't have to be rich in order to yeah. have artwork. And that was, that was his... He was, he was trying to encourage average, everyday people to get involved in art. Mm. So he he was buying all these copyright all these paintings up so that they could be reproduced so that anyone could have them instead of you had to go to a gallery. Yeah, to see. and that's what I mean to give that much back. That's also clever business though because it's, it's, it's brilliant. Quite a big market that wasn't there. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's brilliant business wise, but it is you. I know what you mean. You do see where it's coming from from the point of view of you know this should be for everyone. And in and in a nice way, it takes away from the whole, you know, is is a painting of the Mona Lisa any different to a photograph of the Mona Lisa? Yeah. Where it's if you're looking at the same image or seeing the same, you know, as as good a quality as possible, because you're not exactly going to get to examine the Mona Lisa. Let's no. face it, you're going to be a bit back, aren't you? Um, you know, does it in as in terms of its actual value as a piece of art? You know, the, that I guess it, it appeals anything. to different people, though, doesn't mm. it? Because it, like some people just would want the providence of having the. the oh, that's the thing. And, and that's, the... It, they, that's just what they want. Mm. But it's... yeah, certainly, if if you can appreciate the art for what it is, yeah, I'm sure. Then... I'm sure I heard a story of he one of his first paychecks. He went and bought a huge painting, an old original huge painting, um, and he had it in his house. But it was so big that the only way he could see it was to sit on the floor under the kitchen table because it was the only way he was far <laughs> enough away to take the whole thing in. Yeah. And they said he used to sit there for hours and just stare. And it was his first thing he bought with his very first job. I'm sure I've got mm. that right from the story. Um, but yeah, so it was always a, a passion of his. So I yeah. think he, as you say, it was a very smart business move, but I do think it was just he got to a point where he could afford to give back, and because that was something he was so excited about, yeah, that was... But as you say, with the cooking and everything as well, he just had a, mm. a wine taste. He was a big cat fan. and I think that's the thing as well, is because it's the... That's also another reason to be constantly working. Mm. Is because it's like, well, I want to do this because that fucking wine cellar don't pay for itself. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, I want the... And it's... You know, it is nice that it's that it's there as a as a functional reason to allow him to enjoy the things he wants in life. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, let's face it, he's just a fucking god. 
He is. Of all the people in history, he's the one person I would love to sit down and spend an evening just... Oh, you can imagine. I think, sitting, uh, drinking wine and just chatting to him. You imagine how just... Just be fascinating. He would be. Such I mean, a life. 202 acting credits. So he's not mm-hmm. quite up there with Christopher Lee, but he's doing all right. Um, I mean, we know most of the films he's been in. And he, you know. I mean, there's there's a few that I sort of think I'd... Re- I still want to see uh, Master of the World, which is like a Jules Verne adaption. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you can only get that on some weird Blu-ray with two films he did, Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. Got that. And Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs. I haven't got the Girl Bombs, but ah, I've got right. the Bikini Machine. Yeah, someone, someone's released a Blu-ray of that and it's got Robo on there. Okay. Um, also, this, this keeps coming up. There's a film called The Story of Mankind. It's directed by Erwin Allen, I believe, who is the guy who did like... Uh, Voice at the Bottom of the Sea, Land of the Giants, Lost in Space, all those sort of, all the ones that were like Sunday Tea Time, Channel 4, yeah, 60 yeah, shows, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, he did this film called The Story of Mankind, and it's basically an angel and a devil in cult defending and prosecuting humanity. That sounds like Vincent Price is the devil. Of course he is. He's called Mr. Who Scratch. Would he Peter Laurie is in it. As a, because apparently, basically, what happens is, as they go on, uh, basically, the way they sort of work it for the defence and everything is they just do little pieces from history. And in one of the prosecution pieces held up by uh, Mr. Scratch, Vincent Price's character, hmm. uh, is Peter Laurie as Nero. <laughs> like, fiddling as Rome Burns. Nice. So, which I think is probably a good little bit of casting, actually. I need to say that. But I think that sounds like it could be really good. Um, obviously, on telly, he was a villain in Adam West Batman. He was Egghead, which yes. I believe is an original character. It's not one from the comics. Mm-hmm. Um, he did narration on something called The Hilarious House of Frightenstein. I've got that. Have you? <laughs> there we go. Uh, it's, uh, it's like a floating head thing he does. They go to him for cutaways. Oh, right. It was a okay. kids' entertainment show in Canada. Oh, brilliant. Um, yeah, 12 episodes or something. I've got them all. Nice. Interesting. Um, what else? Uh, he's Professor Rattigan in Battle of the Great Mouse Detective. Got that on DVD. Yeah. <laughs> uh, obviously, he narrated that Tim Burton, the short film Vincent. Yes, um, love that. Yeah, and then I obviously led to sort of uh, Everything else and stuff. Um, also, like in terms of his radio work, uh, he was Simon Templar in Adaptions of the Saint for like f- four or five years, like ah, late forties, okay. early fifties. And he was, um, yeah. And I mean, I can understand that because I mean, again, the Saints meant to be like sort of debonair playboy, and you yeah. know, you, you, you can do that. Um, and obviously, the host star of his own BBC radio anthology the series, Price The Price of Fear. Yeah. I have all of those also. Oh, yeah, I'll, I've got to get them off you, actually. Because yes. I didn't realise this, because I knew it was adaptions of existing, existing stories, but I didn't realise there was also fictional sort of stories of him saying, oh, I went down the shops and this happened. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, of, one of my favourite ones in there is one of those. It's called Lot something. It's a Lot number. Lot two. Yes. Four nine. Yes. The Bram Stoker mummy story. No. Oh. No, no. So it's the story of a painting, and a guy buys the painting and 
hangs it in his study and he stares it until he goes mad and stuff. It's oh, right. But yeah, so he some of them is him doing stories like that where he claims to be involved and tells mm. the whole thing. And some of him is just he sets up the story and then actors take over. Cool. Um, and he just kind of bookends it. Mm. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good... I love Old Time Radio, but yeah. that is my favourite series. Oh, I'll have to get them off, yeah. I'll do your swap. I'll bring the Fear on 4 stuff. For that. Yes. Good fucking yeah. shit, that was. Uh, he also did um, a series, uh, again BBC, which was called Aliens of the Mind, which uh, is him co-starring with Peter Cushing. Oh, which is kind of like the meeting of the US and America, like yeah. like the the Britain, his UK and his US equivalent. You know, like. <laughs> um, he was also at one point going to be in a film called uh, like they, Tom Baker wanted to do a Doctor Who film called Doctor Who meets Scratchman, and again it was going to be Lucifer, and he wanted <laughs> um, Vincent Price to uh, to play him as well. So. Of course he did. Yeah, so. But yeah, so I mean, and obviously, yeah, like I say, so many fucking films, most of which we should watch. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, definitely one of my favourite actors. He comes up in so many of my my yeah. favourite movies. Um, and as I say, we've done twice now, I think we've done Vincent Price Marathons, haven't we, where we've done a whole day of... Oh, no, I think we did one, didn't we, for your mm. birthday... And I think a couple of years ago I did one on my own when I just had a Sunday with nothing to do and I watched a couple back to back and then went, right, that's it, you know. Yeah. I watched The Tingler and um, Fall of the House of Usher, I think. Mm. So I was like, right, go upstairs, get House on Haunted Hill, get um, Dr. Fibes movies out yeah. and just, yeah, just go to town. So sorry, I, we we nerded off and got overexcited. And... Well, it sounds understandable. <laughs> um, but do you think then uh, that American actors just about beat English ones if you had an equal I think it de- I think it depends on the situation yeah. I think it depends I think it also depends on the era okay I was going to say that it goes in decades doesn't mm. it so obviously when the Hammer stuff was coming out that was forefront but of course you had the universal, universal stuff before that so yeah, it sort of swings backwards and forwards across the Atlantic, doesn't it, as mm. the as the decades go. I th- I think also I think it's just in terms of you know like for example I mean this this is part of uh, an eight is it eight films the Poe cycle I think it is I think it might be because yeah yeah there's like there's eight films in this story cycle and. Like Vincent Price is in seven of them. Um, he's not in. Yeah, premature burial. He's not in. Yeah. yeah, but um, and there's and I think it's just that thing of having a lot of the time. There's pl- a lot of the, sort of earlier times there were rep companies sort of almost where it was like Hammer fi- or like, like Carry On films. Hammer films had a stable of actors that they would use. Mm. Um, the Corman, the AIP Corman films, like the Poe Cycle, always used Vincent Price, but also shared a number of actors and stuff. And a lot of it was things like aesthetic reasons, you know, you had like sort of sets being reused, because I think it's like Hammer were doing that for a while, weren't they? They were doing yeah. it, was uh, the original Dracula was on the same set as Rasputin. And I need to rewatch that. 
um, the Reptile and Plague of the Zombies are in are done on the same set and in the same location at the yeah. same time. I so, guess that makes sense. It must be so much work to make the sets. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because there's a there's a film called The Terror, which gets mixed in to some some people put it as part of the Roger Corman uh, Poe cycle, mm. but. A, Vincent Price isn't in it, and I know, okay, Premature Burial is not in either, but also the terror is not based on any actual, it's not based on the Edgar Allan Poe story, it's not based on any fictional story. Because there's, like I say, there's the six, sorry, eight films. You've got The House of Usher, Pit and the Pendulum, Premature Burial, which doesn't have Vincent Price, Tales of Terror. Then you had uh, The Raven, which has got Peter Laurie in it again. Mm -hmm. Uh, Haunted Palace, which has got Long Chaney Jr., now, The Haunted Palace is another weird one because it's actually based on an H.P. Lovecraft story, yeah. but the title is a Edgar Allan Poe poem. Um, and then you've got Mask of the Red Death. In fact, Mask of the Red Death's pretty close as well. It is very close. Very close. And then they finished up in 1965 with The Tomb of Ligia. Or Ligia. I like The Tomb of it's Ligia. Great, yeah. It's a great fucking film. Um... I mean, just to just to give you some sort of other background on it, uh, AI. We keep saying AIP. That's the production company, American International Pictures. Um, they were formed by James Nicholson and uh, James H. Nicholson and Samuel Z. Arkoff in the fifties. Um, originally, they were doing films for like sort of drive-in double bills, things like that. It, basically, they worked out the team market was profitable and you know it was an emerging especially like in the 50s that's really the sort of birth of the American teenagers yeah yeah like the driving market and stuff uh here's one for you um uh the first film that Roger Corman did with them was a 1955 film called The Fast and the Furious ah. which and here's here's an interesting fact uh the director of far, like the the modern Fast and the yeah. Furious um, he couldn't. He couldn't get a decent title for his films. Mm. For the film, his dad worked at AIP with Roger Corman and said, "Well, when we was at AIP, we had a film called The Fast and the Furious." And he was like, "I really like that." <laughs> so they rang up. Like, like basically, uh, Roger Corman got a message through from whoever did. I, I can't remember who it was. Was it Warner? Or, I can't remember who did Fast and Furious, but whichever Universal did Fast yeah, and the yeah. Furious, actually, yeah. And he got a, a, a thing come through to him saying, and this this is this will lead you into Roger Corman, fucking like businessman genius. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they go to him and they said, right, we want to be nice about this because you feel you know we want the title, but there's um, but we don't think that your copyright's that strong on it. So if you don't sell us the title, we will contest it and get it off you. Yeah. So Roger Corman was like, well, I'm not stupid. I'll take the money. Oh, can I have one more thing? And he negotiated himself full access and rights to use the entire of Universal stock footage library. Bloody hell. So he's been paid for The Fast and Furious, which then turns out to be fucking huge and a franchise. So he's got <laughs> money coming in from that. He's got, he's got Universal's entire fucking stock library, which is basically mountains and you know shots of streets and jungles and animals and just everything that you could possibly want for 
constructing around a film. And he made a film for the sci-fi channel called Cyclops. And, like, most of it is universals, like, fucking stock library. And he basically makes this film set in ancient Rome. <laughs> using this and I think it was like the sets from like that the Romans that TV series that was on a oh, right, while yeah. ago yeah I think yeah so he's reused their sets got all this fucking stock for free you know and he's got like yeah full of, and this is the thing Roger Corman's just a fucking just a fucking genius he um I love his films I think they're fantastic the, only, the thing that kind of put me off at first when I started looking into him as a person was he has no actual care about the films at all. He's like, right, all right, you want a, you want a film made? Excellent, okay. Uh, you want it called what? The Raven? Excellent. You give me this much money, give me this time frame, and I will make you that film. And that is all he cares about. He just... He literally wants to make it as fast and as cheap as possible... So the fact that what he makes is absolutely aesthetically amazing is pure coincidence. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't I, I give a shit. I think. I mean, I think he's. I think he's. Uh, I think he's very good technically, but also he was very good at getting other people. He was very. He was a very good talent spotter. Because hmm. um, I mean, he uh, did. Oh, what was it? Um, for example, actually, this will give you an idea. His autobiography is called. How I made one hundred move no, how I made a hundred movies in Hollywood and never lost a dime. <laughs> and I I listened to an interview with Roger Corman where and oh and also if you ever get the chance, Roger Corman has just got the most beautiful voice. Yeah. Roger Corman is a warm treacle that will wrap <laughs> around your cerebral cortex and allow you to sleep easy in your bed. Netflix has got a documentary called Corman's World. Ooh. If you get a chance, watch it. It's oh, I'll, really I'll, good. I'll probably, I'll probably will have to watch that. But yeah, and he, he's on there, and he was. It's, I read, I listened to this interview, and someone said to him, "Oh, why did you call your thing that? Because you've made so many more than a hundred movies." And he was like, and he just said, "Oh, they um, actually, I didn't come up with the title. The publisher did. They told me what they thought the title should be, and I said, well." I didn't always, you know, I didn't always make my money back. I've made more than 100 films. And they apparently just turned around and said, Roger, how often do you make a film where the title is the same as the actual content of the film? And he said, and I just said, fair enough, and hung up the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Call it what you like. (laughs) But yeah, it was just, oh, I just love that man. He is brilliant. Oh, weird thing. Uh, the AIP company um, James Nicholson like one half of it left <laughs> to form his own company in 1972 they only made two films one of which was The Legend of Hell House oh, yeah um, they also the AIP also did uh, uh, sort of stuff in the cinema they did Black Killer Foxy Brown Island of Dr. Morrow the Burt Lancaster one mm-hmm. and, and the Amityville Horror they oh, eventually okay. they eventually ended up getting bought out by a company in 1979, and that company got bought by Orion Pictures. Oh right! Oh nice. But to give you, to give you a, a brief, a brief. Oh yeah, because I think there was an Orion opening on this, wasn't yeah. there? Yeah. After the AIP one. Yeah, because I think it's MGM. Uh, Orion yes. got bought out by MGM. MGM kept Orion as a distribution name, 
So it goes MGM, then it goes to Ryan, and, and then it, then gets, it goes AIP. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Roger Corman directed 56 films. Um, I mean, to give you an idea, these include Attack of the Crab Monsters, uh, The Wasp Woman, Little Shop of Horrors, the original version of that, uh, Creature from the Haunted Sea, Tower of London, that's the uh, Richard Third one, isn't it? I've We've, not seen that. That's Vincent Price and Basil Rathbone, I believe. Actually, thinking about it. Um, X, The Man with the X-Ray Eyes, Roger Corman's Frankenstein Unbound, The Wild Angels. Now, he produced over 400 films <laughs> all the ones he directed which include all the posts the the eight po films for AIP all the ones he directed uh, he also produced he also did dementia 13 uh Dunwich, get on with that Dunwich horror love that film scream of the De- see that's the thing is because he got so many people in it sort of veers from sort yeah, of like you said from quality stuff to, to stuff you like. Yeah, yeah. Big Dollhouse, Boxcar Bertha, um, Cage Heat, Death Race 2000. I was going to say, I hope you mentioned Death Race yeah, 2000. Yeah, Grand Theft Auto, Piranha, uh, Humanoids from the Deep, Battle Beyond the Stars. Uh, he is currently resp- House. The, uh, oh, uh, yeah. we keep saying we need to do that. We do need to do that. Um, but um, currently he is. Um, it, one of his latest films is Sharktopus versus Whale Wolf. Uh, but yeah, he's he's involved with the whole Sharktopus franchise and like Sharktopus versus Terracuda and just all all those. So he is still. I mean, someone said to him uh, like in this interview, there was like a Q and A thing, and there were people going, "Oh, do you ever watch? You know, do you, why don't you remake Attack of the Crab Monsters?" And it's like. Have you seen Sharktopus? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, fair enough, Rog. You really haven't fucking veered, mate. No. And no. the thing is, I mean, he didn't, like you say, he didn't care. It was like, you know, he'd do softcore porn, like producing and stuff like that. And, it's all, and I think also, also, I think that there's the, um, um, you know, like you say, it's just, what was it? Oh, that was it. He said, uh, people say exploitation movie like it's a bad thing. <laughs> to me, exploitation means you've got something someone wants. <laughs> and it's very true, <laughs> you know, <laughs> really. But, um, yeah, as I was saying about him, when I'm saying, oh, yeah, he doesn't give a shit, um, it, obviously, I'd say, he's, uh, the scenes that he lays out and stuff are fantastic. Mm. But, yeah, like I've heard loads of people say, he's the only director who normally... You do a scene, you think it's fine, they'll make you do it ten times. Roger Corman is the other way. You do it, and he goes, right, that's it, we're done. No, no, let, let me have another go, I'll do a better job. No, no, that film costs money, it's in the can, it's done, forget it, move on. Just Apparently he do, Apparently, he did do, he, he was doing sort of like, at one point he was doing multiple takes, um, but then he heard back from Jack Nicholson that he'd just done like 102 on an, a scene in The Shining for Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. And apparently he said to Stanley, like Jack Nicholson said to Stanley Kubrick, just so you know, I usually peak around take 70. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I've just remembered you saying about that. Jack Nicholson actually breaks down in tears in Corman's World about how much he loves Roger Cotton. Just talking about I how much he it. loves the man. He literally breaks down in tears. See, here's the it thing. brought a feeling on that I just couldn't... I was like, Well, because it's Jack Nicholson. You don't imagine he's got... He's like a rattlesnake. You don't expect him to have, like, yeah. human emotions, yeah. you know. It was unbelievable. Lust and greed, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. Not like, 
Last greed and partying, but yeah, you don't expect yeah. it to be. An emotional attachment to a guy who he once worked for. It's well, I mean, this, I mean, this is the thing though, is because I didn't realise that also Roger Corman set up New World Pictures. Yeah, I think he'd left by the time a lot of stuff like you know a lot of the more famous '90s stuff. I think he'd long gone by then, but I didn't realise that was yeah. he'd started them up. Yeah, yeah, check um, that documentary out. It's got so much. Stuff definitely in got to. I mean, actors who received career breaks working for Roger Corman include Jack Nicholson, like we said, Robert De Niro, David Carradine, Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda, Charles Bronson, Sandra Bullock and uh, Bruce Dern. Film Filmmakers who started working for him, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Joe Dante, James Cameron, Jack Hill, who did uh, Spider Baby, yeah. um, Ron Howard, Jonathan Demme, who did Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Um, everybody, everybody yeah. we know and care about. Exactly. Foreign filmmakers who received their first US distribution through Roger Corman include Akira Kurosawa, Ingmar Berman, Francis Truffaut, Federico Fellini, and Peter Weir. Wow. You know, and it's like it's becomes it's come to the point of like, do you just run the American? You're the, like yeah. the responsible for the American film industry. It's unbelievable, you know. From what, and he's still going and still making films and still enjoying doing it. He says, "Like it is exciting. You work in films. That's an it, exciting thing." Yeah, he, he's so enthusiastic, as you say. Even after sixty odd years of doing it, he's still yeah infused by the idea of and and curiously enough, all these people like Joe Dante and Jack, like I said with Jack Nicholson, all these people. They get him to do cameos in their films. He's in The Godfather. He's in Silence of the Lambs. He's like the head of the FBI. And just like loads of different stuff. And it's, it's, it's a weird thing for someone to be that successful in Hollywood and people still like the guy. Yeah. Or he's not been arrested. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just so fucking sort of strange. But well, give give it time for what's happened recently. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I'd imagine I'd imagine if someone wanted to do Roger down by now, it would have happened. Yeah. yeah, but I think so. I mean, what's the best thing? Should we look at them sort of just quickly individually as stories? I mean, so yeah. we've got Morella. So, what did you think? Should, should I give you my quick? Uh, yeah, yeah, please do. Uh, yeah, I've been rambling on. Sorry, I do apologise, Jens. It's just Roger Corman's just You're too excited. Fat, they're yeah. too yeah. fascinating a subject. You know? Yeah. Right, overall, I really liked the second, so that stood out straight away because it was funny. And, yeah. Um, mm. I'd forgotten the actor. Oh, Peter, Peter Laurie. Peter Laurie, yeah. I'll give you some he, lowdown on Peter Laurie in a bit, but I need to breathe. But, yeah, <laughs> he, he was great. But So what I thought was going to happen, I thought it was going to be a bit of a moral story about how he was clearly treating his wife badly mm. and he was going to end up... I thought it would be something supernatural with the cat because there was clearly some weird stuff going on. Yeah. And you said earlier, which I was going to ask about, was um, it was originally called The Black Cat, or was it... Yeah, is that that right? they call that... In the film, They in, in like the script and everything, they refer to that segment as The Black Cat, okay. which is an Edgar Allan Poe story, but it's also really heavily... It's mainly another story called yeah. The Cask of Amontillado, but in literature and like in the script and how they refer to the segments they they called that the black cat yeah okay i mean the, the cat did play a role in mm. that sense that it, i thought it was perhaps sending him a bit crazy yeah why did it keep being different well that's animals? that's that is part of that's kind of the story is that basically because i think that the poe i mean we were talking we might be doing something special 
so that people can hear the stories beforehand. We may, you may mm. have heard them yeah. by now. But um, but yeah, the, uh, but in the Black Cat, it's basically yeah, the man is tormented by his wife's yeah. cat. Okay, and he hates the thing, and then he sort of he goes on like a rampage. He kills the cat, and then I think I can't. I'll have to. I mean, we we've obviously read it, you know. So, so <laughs> being this, but the, it's, it's the cat time. that gives away. Yes, what yeah, he's done, so yeah. it sort of pays him back for mm. for killing his wife and her lover. But but yeah, so so that stood out. Um, yeah, I thought that was good, and it was funny. And you know, he's doing the wine tasting with uh, Vincent Price. <laughs> so yeah, there's loads of great bits. See, now all of that is written because the case for Montelado is similar, but mm. in that, if I remember correctly, so that the guy covets his wife. So he knocks him over the head and has him taken to another country and basically sells him into white slavery. Mm. And he manages to make his way back and tricks the guy to come to his house by saying to him, I've got a case of you. That's right, so he doesn't let on that he knows that it was his friend who set him up. So he comes back and says, oh, I understand that obviously you're married to my wife now. I'm really pleased that you've looked after her. Of course you all thought I was dead. But somebody had me sold into white slavery and I've made my way back. I have a cask of your favourite wine in my cellar. Come down and let me treat you to mm. it. And he takes him down and basically just turns him upside down and drowns him in it. Um, I can honestly say, I don't think people are walled up often enough. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? To, to the point where you can say, what does it look like? I'm walling you in. <laughs> you know, that just, yeah, that should happen yeah. more. Um, Sorry, yeah, just, just so that that was more that was straightforward and yeah, definitely entertaining mm. and, and good. But so right, with the other two, I'll read out what I've got and mm. then you can fill me in anywhere I'm mistaken or confused. So I put the third one was about uh, mesmerizing, and so I thought that was great. I really liked the the interplay between the scientific doctor who had the best of intentions, even with uh, being in love with Vincent Price's wife. Uh, Van who Van I thought was Priscilla Presley for a while. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah Mr. Valdemar. Valdemar, yeah, <laughs> not Valdemar. No, not Valdemar. Okay. No. Uh, yeah, Valdemar. So the case and the facts of M. Valdemar is a completely different <laughs> film. Um, yeah, so so I really like that. Um, so the interplay between him and the crazy repressed pervert weirdo who used a cheap trick to give himself some surface respect when he was basically one step away from being a common rapist in a suit and certainly deserved to end up with good dead with goo all over himself and that, that actually, was a, yeah that's a very I mean, it's a very good sort of uh, it's a very good revenge for yeah. a, a rapist is yeah. to end up covered in the another weird, man's muck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I did like that um, yeah so so I thought that was really good but and I guess so what year did it what year was this this was that chick uh, 62 okay because I imagine around that time there were things like what, what year was Mesmer did he start oh no that's, his... it's, it's, it's from the era of because it's obviously all set in post times so that would have been around the sort of 20s okay and that's kind of that so I think it's just yeah possibly post just Edwardian rather than Victorian mm-hmm. Mesmer sort of yeah because okay. they start actually, yeah. Because they would have it was sort of leading into stuff like Freud and the mm. alienists and things like that, and yeah. So it's sort of it's, it would have been current for Poe, certainly, yeah. So it seemed like that was quite a good um, concept for a story is to look at 
you know, because it's mesmerising. You can see it's kind of scientific, in or at least if you don't know much about it, um, mm. like hypnotism. You know, potentially it might have something, but then making it sort of mess with life and death. Mm. You know, that was a great idea, um, and obviously held him into some sort of weird uh, void. Um, yeah, so so I thought that was great, really. Um, yeah, because that that adaption is actually very close to the story. That's it pretty is. much as you okay. get, and that that noise. Because I mean, I love the sort oh, of vo- the, the way his voice the sounds, tremolo, yeah. Yeah, the thing yeah. in his voice, but just that mm-hmm. is horrid. Yeah, I've heard a fantastic radio adaptation of that story as well. I can't remember. I think I heard it on Relic Radio. Um, so they do all the old time radio. So I can't remember which specific production it was, mm-hmm. but yeah, there there was one on there of the same story. Yeah, it came off really well mm-hmm. on the radio. Again, because you don't need to see it, it's a very easy one to describe. Yeah. But yeah, and then it sort of basically seemed like the guy had been using that almost just to get to his wife. I mean, he hadn't because he was trying to prove something, but it was like almost then became secondary to yeah. Well, know, he, what he really wanted. Well, like like you say, as uh, you know, like most like most hypnotists, he's a rapist. Yeah. Uh, no, like <laughs> like most hypnotism, you know, or sort of stage hypnotism or mm. people using you know it's disreputable you know it's like a spiritualist or something yeah, and then yeah. you you're already in the, and you turn it to your advantage yeah like they're, they're using mm. it to get some power yeah in some way. he's kind of he sort of thought well hang on I didn't think this was going to go this way yeah now where I'm... does this lead because I mean Clearly, he's living in the fucking house. Yeah, yeah. You know, by that point, the fucking the butler's bringing him mm, stuff, yeah, like bringing him his yeah. fucking whiskey, and you know, and he is just. I mean, so yeah, that's Basil Rathbone. That is Basil Rathbone. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you don't know, you we you we will introduce you to him in Son of Frankenstein at some point. Because yeah, when you're ready to go back to the Universals, that is one that you. Again, it's the comedy elements and stuff in it as well had just started to work the way in by that point, and it's a oh, phenomenal film. He also was the uh, he was like the big screen Sherlock Holmes, and for me, mm. and you can okay, see yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, even yeah, in this, it's, he's got the profile, but even that, he's got that coldness that really you do need in Holmes. Um, and yeah, they did. What was it? Uh, yeah, him and a guy called Nigel Bruce, who was his Watson, who was sort of responsible for Watson becoming like the bumbling sort of. Oh, what's that? Holmes? Uh, yeah. Not really. <laughs> Rather than actually being someone sort of kind of capable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they did fourteen films of Sherlock Holmes, half a couple of adaptions, and then the rest of it was sort of. And also, they were set at the time. So it was Sherlock. I mean, it, it, I mean, when you think about it, Sherlock Holmes was at that point, sort of, you know, late, it, it sort of eighteen. I think eighteen eighty eight is the first Sherlock Holmes story. Mm. So it was fifty years. So it was still kind of in the same sort of a world. Yeah. But yeah, it ended up with like Holmes was fighting Nazis and communists and things like that because. Yeah. So actually, Poe stuff must have been older because. Um, that's us. fucking true, yeah. Because we keep bringing up Sherlock Holmes, it keeps coming back to it, but 
Adam and I went to the Sherlock Holmes exhibition mm. at the Royal, I think it was in London, um, at the Royal Gallery, and they had there the first... So Edgar Allan Poe was the first person to ever use the term detective, and it was in his story, Murders in the Rue Morgue. Yes, actually, very and true, yeah. when we were at the exhibition, they had... Poe's original handwritten ledger of Murders in the Room Morgue, so we have seen it, Poe's actual writing in the flesh, and we stood there way longer than most people were comfortable with. Yeah. Oh, I was not moving away no, from that No, that, that was a fucking... That, that, that was talismanic. Yeah. It really you know, was. that really just... His handwriting, yeah. right there, just on the other side of that glass. Can I just say, I owe you a massive fucking apology, Lee. Because I basically transposed Edgar Allan Poe into about two centuries out. Um, yeah, his 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 brief candle flickered between eighteen oh nine and eighteen forty nine, so I think he would actually predate Frankenstein possibly as well. So yeah, I think I think certainly you know definitely the first. That's right. We can edit that out. Well. <laughs> No, because I like, I like, I like apologising. It's one of the few things I've I was surprised when you said you only owe him one apology. <laughs> I'm not apologising for the things that he can't help him to. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so he, yeah, because he wrote this uh, detective character. It was, I think they did Murders in the Room Morgue, and then there's a couple of sequels. Mm. And this character uh, was like a, a detective called Dupont who is very much the precursor of Sherlock Holmes because he uses um, foren- like sort of uh, forensic sort of detection or um, deductive reasoning. That's mm, actually okay, the, yeah. the thing that he's yeah. sort of credited with. Is the first sort of story that he's introduction, yeah. using that sort of a thing. And actually, um, Sherlock in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories... Holmes mentions Edgar Allan Poe's character. He doesn't mention him. He doesn't mention him. He mentions him as a fictional character. He yeah. doesn't sort of like say, "Oh, there was I a guy. I know this yeah. bloke." You know, uh, I know this Gozier. So, <laughs> um, but yeah. So Basil Rathbone did like fourteen Sherlock Holmes films. Mm. Um, mm. He also did. Um, so I quite like to see him as a goodie because yeah, obviously at the moment it's. Yeah, um, yeah, I've got the memory of him suddenly saying, "I'll take whatever I want, yeah. and yeah. you can't I mean, stop me." And... I mean, he does play. I mean, he plays bad guy as many bad guys as he does good guys. Really, yeah. he's in um, he's in comedy of terrors. He's fantastic, with, in and he's great in that. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's he, obviously, like you said, he's in he's Baron Vo- Wolf von Frankenstein in Son of Frankenstein. Um, yeah, he's in uh, Tower of London with. Um, Vincent Price. Got that. That's yeah. that, yeah. Um, he also is in a ver- in a film called The Black Cat with Bella Lugosi, which is not to be confused with the film The Black Cat with Bella Lugosi and, and Boris Karloff. Karloff. And none one. of them are to be confused with adaptions of The Black Cat by Edgar Allan Poe, because <laughs> neither of those are. More to the point, just to, while we're noting about adaptions of The Black Cat, um, I recommend Lucio Fulci's because all the stunt cats are brilliant. <laughs> They're all lovely, and um, that uh, Patrick 
Patrick McGee is in it. Oh, you know it? the one from Asylum? Yes. Who talks like that. <gasps> Lilliput. <laughs> um, but also, um, uh, Helene, the, uh, the wife of Valdemar, uh, she is in the Haunted Palace. Oh, okay. And the Doctor is in Return of the Fly. Oh. With Vincent Price, <laughs> Return of the Fly. I have a lovely seven-inch vinyl um, uh, demo version of that that Dean managed to get hold of me for. Uh, oh, Dean managed to get hold of you. Yeah, <laughs> you're oh, easy. Sorry, just to interject very quickly, so if I don't tell you about this, I'll forget, and it is kind of relevant. Um, just to ruin the timeline, for obviously you people are now well aware that we record these months in advance. Um, so on the 23rd of November yeah. Lady Jennifer and I are booked to go and stay at Grimdyke House um, in oh, from Surrey I think it is the woman in black no sorry a fro- so it's the house used in the Curse of the Crimson Altar oh wow it's also uh, one of the houses I'm not sure where so I'm going to have to re-watch it to find it but it's in The Devil Rides Out as well, apparently. Oh, cool. Which I didn't realise until I was looking it up on IMDb. Yeah. So it's used in there as well. And we are booked to stay in the main house. So we're going to be at the top of that big flight of stairs. Oh, which, nice. which Boris Karloff comes down in the Curse yeah. of Crimson Altar. So we're going to be up that set oh, stairs fantastic. somewhere. Mm-hmm. Day before Christmas Eve. So we're going to go and stay there for the night. And uh, The day before Christmas Eve, but you said the 23rd of November. November, yeah. Oh, I meant 23rd of November. Oh, I was going to say, yeah. Christmas come early this year. Don't, yeah. get, don't get it wrong. Yeah, 20, yeah get there on the wrong <laughs> yeah. day. Um, so we'll turn, see some good turn photos. Up. There. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there'll be plenty of photos I'll have to share. Turn up on the 23rd of, turn up 23rd of November in your jumper and your <laughs> Santa hat. You know. I tried to talk Jennifer in because in Curse of the Crimson Altar, um, he's looking for his brother, um, and they don't work out until halfway through the film that the reason nobody knows his brother, and he said my brother was definitely here, and he says no, no, he wasn't, um, is because his brother uses a false name when he's going around buying antiques, so he tells everyone his name is Dennis Vosper. So I said to Jennifer, when you book the room, you've got to book it under the name Dennis Vosper. Um, but she wouldn't because she hasn't got a credit card in that name. She's told me to piss off. Yeah, it's probably. But I thought it'd be great. Fun. <laughs> On an interesting note, and this is just it's just weird, uh, just false names given. Uh, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails does uh, used to use uh, Steve Austin because it was the the six million dollar man. Mm. But obviously, I'd assume he had to stop doing that because presumably wrestling fans started looking for, yeah. you know, were turning up and being slightly disappointed that it wasn't Stone Cold. Guy. Yeah, like a skinny goth bloke, well, <laughs> formerly skinny goth bloke, yeah. um, rather than Stone Cold. Yeah. Mm. But, uh, so, yes. All right, and to loop back round to the first one, so yeah. I loved the start of this. I thought the, and again, it sounded a bit philosophical about... Um, I think you said something like an obsession with death, what happens when you die, and mm-hmm. and it showed the heart beating, and so that was a great start. And then I think I like the story idea, but I'll read out what I've got, and then you can tell me what you think. So um, it left me a bit too confused. It might have been to do with incongruous emotions again, because it seemed like he was he'd spent twenty six years mourning the death of his wife. Mm. and blaming his daughter for it 
and then sort of within a scene all of a sudden he was like I'm so glad you're back home and it's wonderful then his wife comes back from the dead and he pretty much kind of ignores her and is worried about the daughter and then they all die in a big explosion Hmm. and so I think I sort of get the idea of it but um, but yeah it felt like I think it should have been longer for me to fully yeah I know it seems like quite a turn on a dime emotionally yeah Yeah. Yeah. and and I always find that difficult because it pulls me out of the the story Mm. and so yeah, that, that's, I felt like it could have been really great, and somehow I was just getting a bit too rushed through the sort of ideas. And then, especially, uh, the, so, the, so the other thing that did confuse me was that the doctor said she's about to die, and then that made him soften to her, hmm. which that makes sense. But then she sort of died, and then, then why did the wife want to kill them all anyway? Because why did she blame the doctor? Well, she blamed the daughter for her death. That's what he was saying. So, they, yeah, but why? Like, because... Well, because she, she knew that it was linked to... That her illness had started or whatever had happened. So, yeah, so, so I felt like they could her. have had a few more details about what illness she had or why. Again, but... Uh, Poe uh, tends to be a bit... I think that's the trouble. is because it comes from, like, the... I mean, you'll get to hear it, but, I mean, mm. like, the, the, the story... I mean, that is... Certainly, in terms of the language used and everything else like that, is near impenetrable. Mm. You know, it's very sort of, it's very sort of stream of consciousness mania. You know, yeah, it really yeah. just speak. It sort of speaks to the madness of the character. Yeah, and I wonder if trying to get from that, you know, people uh, a lot of the time post stuff, people die of mysterious illnesses. I was okay. going to say, we are talking about 160 years ago mm. this story was written when, again, a lot more people died from childbirth and, 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 you know, and medicine, complications thereof. And medicine yeah. wasn't what it is now, so they probably half the time didn't even know. They would just know, well, this person was giving birth and died. And yeah, so I mean, that'd be fair enough. So at first, I thought she died during childbirth, and then he said it was at a party later on. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, that. It's a bit more confusing again, but see, see in the story, it, the impression that you get is more that she dies in childbirth. But like right, I okay. say, I think because of the way the story is, it's very sort of, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's much again, it's much more like a sort of mood piece, and it's yeah, all, all within yeah. the guy's head rather than trying to sort of see one, form once, an explanation. Once yeah. so I think. Um, I totally didn't know what to expect. Well, I didn't realise it was mm. three stories. So I think once I'd got to the end, it was like, okay, yeah, I can see why they're going to be a bit shorter. Mm. Yes, yeah. you've got to fit three in. And, and I definitely got that sense that, yeah, you're meant to get a mood rather than the specific... Because weirdly enough... Details. Weirdly enough, it's the best way... It would be the best way to adapt Poe, mm. is that way. But, also I agree with you, I think Morella could have been a film on its own. Yeah. yeah, but then yeah. I suppose it's kind of near to Vigia, you know, because that's the trouble. Is Poe does tend and to fall, fall, of, the, uh, fall, fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, there, there's a lot of dead wives coming back. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of dead wives. There's a lot of consumptive teenage girls. There's mm. a lot of premature burial. Um, there's just, yeah, there's a lot of torture. He well, does have a dwell. He does tend to dwell on a number of. The things, other bit yeah. that really bothered me was that they were happy walking around in the house that was complete. 
chaos with about a million cobwebs, and I just thought I was really hoping she was going to start tidying up a bit. Yeah. <laughs> to, but to be honest, I, I like the I like the aesthetic of the house. Yeah. And I and frankly, when he says when it's when she died and it was, I envy you. And like I said, I have said that to flies on <laughs> dead flies on windows before, and it's just sort of. I think that's the trouble. Is it just appeals to me as a, a unreconstructed mm, yeah. old school goth. So it was kind of like, yeah, I want to live in a dirty palace. Oh, you lucky cunt! Mm. You've died. You <laughs> lucky if, bastard. If that, yeah, you know, best part of two hundred years ago, people were still, you know, people were still shitting in corridors in the houses of parliament, and you know, chucking slot buckets out the window. So a few. I tried last week, but they threw me out. <laughs> um, they said, "Take that to the lords." Uh, with regards to your saying how quickly his mood changed to water, mm. I think in my mind I reasoned it that because she was sent away when she was still a baby, mm. it was very easy to demonise her when yeah. you didn't actually have the person in front of you. When it's a, a, a thought of a person, it's yeah. very easy to demonise. And However, when it's an actual, you know, it's like trolling yes. on the internet. When there's no face to it, it's easy to hate. But then when the person is stood in front of you and you see that they are just a, a person, mm. it, it, it's a lot harder to have the same... And I felt that that was why... Yeah, I... He, he tried to get her away and she determined to stay and he softened a little bit. Then he found that she was dying and all of a sudden he realised that... Yeah. He was blaming her for something that... I, yeah, I guess it's hard for me to put myself in his position because I just feel like if he'd spent 26 years... Thinking about his wife so much that he had a dead body in the next room. Like then, if she came back to life, he'd probably be a bit more interested in the fact that she's come back to life. Yeah. But uh, and then obviously she wanted to kill him as well. But I wasn't sure why she wanted <laughs> to kill him. But so yeah, I don't know. I, just, I felt like with just a few adjustments, it would have totally made a lot more sense to me. Mm. But it'd be interesting to hear the story. See, I, um, I see. I go with I go with you. Is I think probably the. Like you say, the confrontation of actually having the person there. Mm. You, be- you, you didn't begin know to sort all. of you begin to sort of soften yeah. on it, and then that could be like a floodgate when mm. it's like, well, actually, you know, it's like, do you know what? I'm kind of it's sort of I'm beginning to feel a connection, and then you're going to have it ripped away, and it almost it then replicates the grief that he's had over the his wife. Time. Yeah. yeah. You know? So, but yeah. I think that, um, like I say, I mean the, the 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 story is just a lot more stream of consciousness and everything. I mean, mm. cast, the rest, the others. I mean, like the Black Cat, and certainly like Cask of Amontillado and the um, facts in the case of M. Valdebar are pretty close. Mm. And yeah, I think that this it's like with um, it's a similar problem, and it's weird because he was. Because obviously Lovecraft was such a Poe fan and Poe obsessive yeah. that weirdly enough they both suffer from the same thing of because they were short story writers. A lot of the time with a short story, you get a mood or you get a scene. Yeah. Because actually, I was listening to I was listening to something just to digress. I was listening to a thing with uh, there's a Scottish comedian called Limmy, and he. Got, he said he'd got in his head he wanted to do a short story book that was based around one event 
where basically it was, I think he said, what was it, someone was on holiday. Uh, he, he got the idea while he was on holiday, but he said it'd just be like you're sitting in the hotel. One guy stands up and just goes, well, I want to thank everyone for ignoring me and my family the whole time we've been here. We're leaving tomorrow. I hope you enjoy yourselves. And then sits back down and like, and he said he never want what it would be is it would never reveal that guy's story, but it would be the story of everyone else around. So it would be people sort of like like a young couple on honeymoon going, what the fuck's wrong with him? Or a guy in the pool drowning, who that's the last thing he hears is this guy standing up and saying that. Or a guy recounting it in the pub two weeks later, going, "Do you know the funniest thing happened when I was on?" And he can't get the story out because people keep interrupting him and things like that. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I. But um, sorry, yeah, I don't know why I went off on that. <laughs> but I think that both, yeah, Poe and Lovecraft would suit anthology films much better, and they're rarely adapted that way. Yeah, and I think it's a shame because you, I mean, like for example, I mean one of the other. One of the other uh, stories in uh, one of the uh, other films in the Poe cycle is The Raven, which is a great film, but it's based <laughs> on the poem The Raven, quoth the Raven nevermore. And they've just made up like. Yeah, like, the, whole like, the whole story is just made. It's like yeah. rival magicians. It, I guess that's a battle between two, well, between two magicians and a terrible magician over one of them's wife. Whereas, yeah. Yeah, the the uh, the poem is just about a guy lamenting the death of his wife, and he's being tortured by a raven that yeah. flies through the window. Yeah, because because in yeah because in, in the actual raven, um, basically, uh, Vincent Price is a magician. Uh, a raven comes through the window, uh, but the raven is actually Peter Laurie, who's been turned into a raven by Boris Karloff okay. because they had a fight. And he spends most of the film going, why don't you give me my magic bag? Yeah, Yeah, so Vincent Price turns him back and then Peter Laurie says, you know your wife isn't really dead. She's up there on that hill living with that other magician. Mm. So they go up there to have a magic battle with him and his son turns up. Jack Nicholson's Peter Laurie's son. (laughs) Actually, this was a thing. This was another thing that came up with Corman, which I thought was really interesting. And funnily enough, I tried to find the old Clive Barker's A to Z of horror like, but they're not because they had an interview with Roger Corman where he talked about Peter Laurie, um, Vincent Price, and Boris Karloff, mm. and couldn't find it anywhere, which is really annoying because you want it to be, you know, I wanted to see it again after all this time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, on that they said that there was a there was a bit of a clash. Well, not really a clash, but just like a sort of a, a one problem that he had was that Boris Karloff went to him and said, "Look." Peter Laurie's improvising, and I'm not used to that. He's like going, he do, he does different things. He stands in different places. He does weird shit. He's making stuff up. And does he always do that? Then? Yeah, apparently that was, it, it that definitely was just, looks like he that could. was just his technique. Yeah. That was just how he worked. But so and like he so basically, yeah, he had to go and he had to sort of placate. Uh, not placate Boris Karloff, but like say to him, look, I'll have a word. But he said that the curious thing was is that um, Vincent Price was fine with both. Yeah. Like with Boris Karloff, it was like, right, you learn the lines, they're in the script, you stand there, you stand there, that's your mark, you do this, you do yeah. that. Like a proper stage actor, like, you know. Whereas, uh, but Vincent Price had no problem switching 
and, just... and working with Peter Laurie and just yeah. fucking about and mm. doing weird shit. And also, apparently, um, Peter Laurie and Jack Nicholson worked out in The Raven that the whole plot, the whole thing of it, like their whole relationship was based on Peter Laurie hates his son <laughs> and his son wants nothing else in the world but his dad to love him. Oh. And it's just, and you know, you just sort of think, there's a, there's a lot gone into, uh, mm. like what is it's essentially... It's a, a just, ridiculous comedy. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's great. I mean, I think that's the thing. That is the, the middle section of this where you've got Peter Laurie and Vincent Price together. They are so... So fucking good. Mm. So funny. And it's like the little shit, like you can see in the background, like sort of like when Vincent Price is tasting and Peter Laurie's just in the background mimicking his tasting technique. And sort of, and the bit where um, he falls asleep and sort of like. And rolls onto the floor. Yeah, oh, I think he's unwell. (laughs) And just Vincent Price's face when he just goes, (laughs) yes. And it's just. Yeah. Oh. Oh. But yeah. So, I'm I'm an unbelievably uh, obsessed with Mr. Peter Laurie at the yes. moment because uh, you said we were doing this and I was like, oh great, I can do some sort of like bits and pieces and you can go uh, and watch him again. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> but yeah. No. And and I just like I've now become fucking obsessed with him. It's like. Um, it's like a Donald Pleasance job. It's obviously, it's obviously bald men with me, isn't it? Really, you know, or balding men. Just to just to also point out, the guy who's the um, barman in, the, you know, the barman who yeah. reports him to the police. Uh, he is in Little Shop of Horrors mm. um, and The Beast from Haunted Cave, uh, which were both like Roger Corman. Is that Little Shop of Horrors with Rick Reynolds? No, this is the original Little okay. Shop of Horrors, which is a Roger Corman film. It's got Jack Nicholson in it. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should do that as a double bill, like a comparison one. We should definitely like, watch that because yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to see. And also, I've Claire's never seen Little Shop of Horrors thinking about it. That is something that I think she'd dig because mm. she, likes, she likes to sing along. I think and, so we should get... Get Claire in, and yeah. we should do the two of them back to back. One, yeah, because they're not. I mean, they're not sort of disturbingly, sort of. You know, they're not scary at all. No, really. no. And again, the old black and white one's probably only just over an hour long or whatever. Not only that, but also just I know how much fun I can have just wandering in the clay, going, and I'll be your dentist. <laughs> but. But also, the chairman of the wine society is in Comedy of Terrors. As well, he's uh, Riggs. I don't know who that is in Comedy of Terrors because I can't remember the names. And like you said, Joyce Jameson, who is Vincent Price's wife in Comedy of Terrors, she's, she's also fantastic. She's also in Death Race Two Thousand, and she's yes. in the Monsters and just loads of shit. And uh, yeah, she's great. She's phenomenal. Yeah, I like her. Anyway, so Mr. Peter Laurie, I won't do it in the voice. Um, born Laszlo Lowenstein in Austro-Hungary, nowadays where he comes from is Slovakia. Okay. Um, 1904 to 1964, um, he died at the age of 59 of a stroke. Um, and actually, I thought this was lovely, Vincent Price read the eulogy at his funeral. Because mm. oh. he was big friend, him, uh, they were big, they became really close friends. I think he was also um, really good friends with Humphrey Bogart. And apparently oh. was like, uh, apparently there were a lot of occasions when Humphrey Bogart was like wasted around people's houses mm. or things like that and Peter Laurie would be rung up and yeah I'll come and get him 
Yeah. Oh. So he was like, yeah. I mean, and um, he had um, chronic gallbladder pain was treated for morphine, so he was a morphine addict most of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, but like they said, it was never. He was never like a rehab job or anything else like that. He no. was basically a functioning addict. Yeah. I mean, it's not good, and it certainly didn't do his health any good, and that's why he died quite young. But yeah. but he yeah. managed to get he, through. He was, it never yeah, interfered with his no, work. No, no, or... he just he just sort of bowled through and everything. But yeah, he studied theatre with Bertolt Brecht in Berlin before moving into film. Um, he left Germany in 1933 after the Nazis came to power, and apparently, according to Roger Corman, so take it with a pinch of salt. But um, he heard that he was Hitler's favourite actor, and that was his cue. He left the next day. No, <laughs> <laughs> like, Ryan, no, I don't want any of this. Um, he was the first person to have played James Bond villain hmm. in a TV version of Casino Royale. He was the Shifra against Barry Nelson as Jimmy Bond. Apparently, yeah, they Jimmy Bond. Jimmy Bond, because it was yeah, they he played American in that. So it's like yeah, um, this I thought was just fucking weird. His daughter, Catherine, was picked up by Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Bueno, the Hillside Stranglers. Oh, my God. They found out he was, that she was Peter Laurie's daughter and let her go because they were like, oh, fans of Peter Laurie. Bloody hell. And she, she, well, she didn't know this until they, like, got they got caught and mentioned it. And she was like, you know, you, she just got picked up. They were dressed as cops. They used oh, to dress when they were on in full blown. Yeah, they were in full. They, she, she was, you know, she was a victim until Jesus. that got mentioned, and it, I mean, it pays to name drop, doesn't it? <laughs> Apparently, but yeah, I thought that was fucked up. This is just one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard. You know, um, uh, McCarthy in uh, Hollywood, where they were looking for communists, yeah. and it was like the witch hunts and the. Uh, un- the House of Un-American Activities Committee, yes. where they would call people up and, are you a card-carrying member of the Communist Party? Uh, they called up um, Peter Laurie and said, do you know any communists in America? And he gave them a list of literally every single person he personally knew. Mm. <laughs> He's such a knob. And what I love about that is, I love the fact that's also someone who was in Germany when the Nazis came to power. Yeah. And it's like, you don't frighten me. I've seen professionals. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, but they think that might have actually, because he was big friends with Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart was like a proper, like, patriot, you know, yeah. right wing sort of, yeah. Uh, and he got constantly hauled up in front of them. They think it might be to do with that. <laughs> So, yeah, basically... I'm sure I heard an anecdote of um, Vincent Price being questioned as well. So that's yeah, it probably is. That came up. Yeah, it probably is. I mean, he just, yeah, he basically just thought, well, pick the phones out of that. There's like, you know, giving them like over like hundreds of names. And also, he worked in Hollywood. So, yeah, there was probably plenty of people that were like, I told you that Bogart was a comic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, he did, uh, like you mentioned earlier, he did Fritz Lang's first talkie uh, was a film called M, which is spectacularly good. Very true very, crime very film. Good. Very grueling. Very and also very modern. It's really weird because yeah. you expect, especially when you got things like they start bringing sound in, and like we said when we were watching The Wolfman, that things get a bit, um, you, like because they had to bring in the sound equipment, everything went a bit more stagey again. Yeah. 
Um, but no, I mean, Fritz Lang just fucking goes with it and just uses it so well. And you have things like, you know, you have like, rather than having, like, there's a conversation, there's one point there's a conversation going on between these two mums about child, the child killings that are going on. But all you see is their silhouette and children playing in a playground and stuff like that. And they were like, that was just, you know, this is shit that people wouldn't think of necessarily now. Yeah, it's like a masterful set piece yeah. of the time. And, you know, he's just, it's like, great, I've got sound, I can do this, I can do that. And he's just really <laughs> sort of gone to town with it. Then he ended up working with, uh, he was in The Man Who Knew Too Much with Alfred Hitchcock. Um, he was in Mad Love, which I don't know if you've ever seen, is uh, yeah. really good. That's a really good film. It's about a bloke who uh, basically, uh, he wants this, again, we're back to the wanting the woman. Uh, he's a surgeon who replaces her husband's hands with those of a circus knife thrower. <laughs> and whenever he hears a certain tune, the hands remember and start throwing knives. Great film. Um, the Raven, like we said, Comedy of Terrors, uh, Beast with Five Fingers, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, um, that story of mankind that we've got to watch. Um, like I say, he was big friends with Humphrey Bogart, did five films with him, did The Maltese Falcon, which if you've never seen, is incredible. Uh, All Through the Night, Casablanca, which obviously huge, huge film. Yeah. Uh, Passage to Marseille and Beat the Devil. Now, in um, The Maltese Falcon, he is the henchman of a character called the Fat Man, who is basically Jabba the Hutt. Oh. That's the reason Jabba the Hutt is a big oh. fat dude, is because there's a fat guy in uh, Morty's Falcon. And, and then they both played similar characters in Casablanca. And it's played by a guy called Sidney Greenstreet, who was this huge fucking bastard. Because, I mean, you've seen Peter Laurie, he's not that tall, yeah. you know. But this guy was like really, really huge fat guy who only started doing films at the age of about 62. Wow. Like English guy who just sort of moved into it and is marvellous uh, capital, capital, yes. Uh, but they ended up doing like they did like nine films together because they sort of ended up as like this weird like villainous Laurel and Hardy almost that they sort of did they just got booked to do loads of films together and so yeah so they did like they did Casablanca and Passage to Marseille and Maltese Falcon which were also with Bogart but they also did Background to Danger The Conspirators Mask of Demetrius The Verdict Three Strangers now, The Verdict sounds like it might be worth watching as well, so I'll let you know if that's any good. Excellent. Um, but also, and again, total fucking insanity, he was also played the Japanese detective Mr. Moto in eight films. <laughs> and yes, I will say, it's offensive. <laughs> now, from, from the point of view of basically, he is the coolest character in it, Mr. Moto. He is like, you know, there's... There's no sense that they are caricaturing uh, the Japanese or anything mm. else like that. He is the smartest guy in it. He's the Sherlock Holmes of the story, you know, sort of thing. But, yeah, he is played by a white dude. So no. it's, it's just a bit bad. Although I did see something where someone had pointed out, is this just Hollywood at the time, though, where it's like, well, we need someone to play this Japanese guy. Well, he's from Hungary. That's pretty much the same, <laughs> isn't it? You know. But yes, yeah, so that's the, the marvellous, marvellous fucking Peter Laurie. Um, mm. yeah. A couple of things I would like to mention very quickly that didn't come up. Vincent mm. Price films. Cause yes. I'm a nerd. Um, 
back to Hitchcock, it isn't Hitchcock, but it feels like it. Have you seen Shock? Possibly. A woman is in a New York hotel. Her husband's been off fighting in the war, mm -hmm. in World War Two, I believe it is, and she's waiting for him to return. So he's coming back to New York. So she goes to this hotel to stay and wait for yeah. him. And while she's in there, she sees out of her window in the room opposite a guy kill his wife. Oh, um, right. And okay. she goes into shock. Basically, she faints and she goes mm. into shock. Um, so they ship her off to the local mental hospital. And when she wakes up, the doctor in the mental hospital is the guy who she saw murder his wife across the way. So he is trying to psychologically break her so that she can never tell anybody. And it's an amazing film. And it's Vincent Price. And it's... Is he the doctor? He plays the doctor. Yeah, yes. that does sound pretty messed up. It's a. It was one of those. I got it on one of those. You know, like in the pound shop, yeah. free movies. And it, yeah, one of them was that, and it had Vincent Price. I was like, well, it's not horror, but I'll give it a go. Oh, mm. it's amazing. Um, See, that's the thing. He didn't just do like Peter Laurie. Peter Laurie mainly did film noir, and that's kind of where Vincent Price started. Yeah. He did a lot more, that, like you say, thrillers and that I sort of thing. I tried to watch Dragon Wick recently, which is one of his first films, back when he was like a matinee idol before he yeah. into horror. Um, yeah, um, it, it, was, it was pretty good. Um, I think I watched half of it, and it was late night, and I never quite got round to returning to it, but I will. Mm. Um, and the other film that I wanted to bring up from later in his career is uh, The House That Drip Blood, which I know we've mentioned before, yeah. the Kenny Everett movie. Um in which he plays the sinister man. Yeah, he's so he's again. It, that's back to his comic mm. timing in that. And, but also, it's that thing of his comic timing. He knows to play it exactly as if he was in like theatre of blood. Well, mind you, a lot of his stuff, like um, which find a general. You yeah. know, there's no comedy in which find a general. He knows oh, to play it straight. Horrible film. I've which find a general is amazing. I don't think I ever want to see it again. Oh, it's a great fucking film. I probably should, but I don't really want to. <laughs> see, see, I, th I think at this point you might be right that we might need to just quickly shout out Vinny's films or a few of his films because I think, yeah, Dr. Fives, you mentioned which one in general. Theatre of Blood. Yeah. Uh, the Fly and Return of the Fly. Uh, the, the House of Wax, the 3D remake in 1953 because there is an earlier 30s one. Yes. Which actually is probably the better one, actually, but... It doesn't have Vincent Price. No. Monster Club, Comedy of Terrors, Madhouse, Tingler, Last Man on Earth. Yeah. Scream and Scream Again. Um, yep. Uh, the Invisible Man Returns. Uh, oh, that's the first one of this list that I've not said. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> and, oh, because he's obviously, and he's, actually, he's the Invisible Man in um, uh, Castello Meet Frankenstein as well, isn't he? Oh, is he? Yeah, right at the end, you know, when it's they, uh, they like, escape the monster. Hmm. And then they just get in the boat, and it's sort of like, uh, well, thank God we got rid of all, you know, thank God we've lost all those monsters. And then it's like, oh, really? I was hoping to join in myself. <laughs> <laughs> God, yeah, vaguely remember. <laughs> vaguely. Um, but yeah, so, all in all, sorry, Chris, you've already. <laughs> yeah, sorry, mate. I've, I, with I, um, oh. Roger Corman and Vincent Price and Peter Laurie, mm, we yeah. got a little bit overexcited. Yeah. Um, but now you know why. Mm. Um, yeah. 
And I think the more of his stuff you see, the more, yeah, the more you sort of fall in love with him as an actor. Yeah. Um, and again, like we were saying, like the, the stories you hear of him offset and things about how... So, it all adds to it. Yeah, mm. so you mentioned before about when he was in Castle Frankenstein. Mm. Um, so apparently he turned up on the day... To, so it was made by a small local broadcast network. Um, so they basically, they could only afford him for one day. So he turned up and shot all of his all of his scenes in one go, because it's just him in front of a black backdrop just talking, and they mm. sort of superimpose it and put funny lighting on it. Um, but yeah, so supposedly he turned up on the day, and it was super hot, and it was a long shoot, because they only had him for one day, so that was a long day. Um, yeah, and he stayed and signed autographs for all the cast. He had his photograph taken with everybody on the cast. Um, and when they all went for a break... He drove down to the village and bought like two crates of beer and brought it back and just sat and had a beer with everybody at the end of the day. Like he, mm. he just comes across as the nicest guy you could ever hope to meet. And yeah, just could not have any more respect for him. I'm just gay that I never got a chance to, to meet him really. Um, but yeah, as I said before, he's the one person. If anybody ever said, right, you can have one evening sitting and yeah. chatting to somebody, who would it be? He will always be the top of that list for me. Always. Mm. So I'd better watch some more of his films. Yeah, you really need to. And it's it's got such a massive back catalogue. Mm. As I say, I've collected as many as I can, and I've probably, probably got 30 to 40 of his films. Yeah. As you say, two hundred odd credits. I've mm-hmm. haven't even got a quarter of his stuff. It's amazing how much he's. Uh... It's yeah. I mean, well, I think. I mean, between them, I mean, this is this is the trouble with. Uh, I think this is probably where I've been going off, and I do apologise if I've bored either either of you gentlemen or indeed the listeners. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that. Yeah, when you've got people with careers like that all in the same fucking film. Yeah. Mm. You know, yeah. it's yeah. There's a hell of a lot to cover, which is why I, I've still never gotten over the fact that they got um, uh, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Vincent Price, um, and John Carradine, and they were all in Oh House the uh, House of Long Shadows, Shadows yeah. but they aren't the main characters in it, and the the two main characters in it are the worst actors ever. So the entire film is painful to watch, despite the fact it's got these four absolute gods of horror in That's it. Has it got Sheila Keith in it as well? Possibly. Um, but um, I think probably more to the point, it's like, yeah, but for a film like that, they can afford them for one day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can afford <laughs> them for the full show. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a terrible thing. Um, Right, so we should probably wrap this up because I've got a feeling we've gone on way too long. Absolutely. Sorry, guys. Um, so, we need something for when we return. What mm. are we going to watch when we return, Adam? Uh, what are you thinking, sir? Um, maybe bring it back to something modern again. It's what? been a while since we've done a modern... You mentioned uh, Quartum... Uh, is it Quake, Quake Quake Mass? Mass. Quake Quake Mass, yeah. That's that's Hammer, so that would be that's uh, quite nice in the pit sixties, I think. Um, also, um, just 
uh, just a reminder, The Evil Within, which I still have not watched, which is fairly modern. That's the one that's made that was made by the like one of the Rockefeller family or like one of the big money families. Okay. And basically, it's his first film, and he got to, but he's got unbelievably huge amounts of cash to make this horror film. And apparently it's it's a first horror film, but the thing that's not the the problems that it has are not effects wise. Okay. You know, because he's got this guy's got a lot of and apparently some of it looked quite spectacular. Okay. Um the uh yeah, as I say it was a guy I believe it's the Rockefeller family, but yeah, he was uh basically fucking filthy rich, made this film um, and then, but he was doing loads of amphetamines and ended up dead before the film got released. Wow. So, yeah, you've got a film with an exciting backstory, mm. if, if nothing else. But apparently, and I believe Michael Berryman is in it, you know, Hills Have Eyes. And, yes, yes. Uh, the accused chicken fucker from <laughs> Devil's Rejects. Yes. Um, um. So we've got yeah, that. I'm up for that. Should we? Because that's something none of us have seen. Yeah, this Should is what I was thinking. You know, go for a whole new. Yeah, and it's as I say. I mean, it came out. I, th- I don't think it had a theatrical run. I think it only came out a few months back, like actually on DVD. Okay. Uh, on Blu-ray and DVD, yeah. So if you're up for that, I'm up for that. Excellent. Okay. Cool. Let's go with that. Also, uh, Curtain was mentioned. Oh yeah, oh, Curtain yeah. as mentioned by Dean. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, we've, uh, well, how about we leave it as a mysterious yeah. thing? Ooh, Ooh, mystery. So what you mean is the, whatever one we managed to get our hands on him. Yeah, well, I've, weeks until uh, we're I've, we've got Curtain, mm, we've yeah, got Evil going. Within, um, I assume you've got quite a mass in the pit. I have got quite a mass yeah. in the pit, yeah. So, yeah, it could be mm. any any one of those. Excellent. Oh, exciting. Leave, yeah, we could leave some... Some hints, some trivia, some doubts to work it out for yourselves, which yeah. I'm against. Excellent, cool, right. Well, thanks very much for sticking with us on this very long and uh, very, very geeky. I did try and keep my geek in my pants for as long. as I let him hang out and scream. Oh, I apologise for that. Yeah, I apologise too. It's because you said about it like last week. It was like, what, 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 what were we going to do? We do tales of terror, and then I was like, oh yeah. It's and and just going through it and I have seriously Claire is fucking sick of stories about Roger Corman and Peter Laurie (laughs) because they're all just like I didn't tell you this guess what I've just found out I have no idea who these people are (laughs) stop it excellent well um, are we going to ask them to give us a five star review yeah, can we have a five star review, please, on iTunes? Would be lovely. We've had we've had a couple actually. We've yeah, done we some quite early on, but if anyone anyone feels the need, that would be lovely. Uh, please feel free to comment below. Um, we encourage you to do so, and we will reply and interact. Yeah. As, uh, on Facebook, you can come to our SoundCloud. Facebook page. We're on SoundCloud, uh, where you're probably listening to us now. Um, also, you can email us at info at welcometohorror.com um, or follow us on Instagram at welcometohorror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, so we look forward to hearing from you all. Thanks again for listening. And uh, mystery one next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.